This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to the sixth episode of Through the Years, the podcast where the two gentlest gentlemen review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. And this gentleman number one is Trevor Dame. And as always, by my side is the gentlest of the gentle gentlemen, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how you doing? So am I the gentlest of the gentle gentlemen, or am I gentleman number two, or do I have both titles? Well, see, you're both, because gentleman number two lets gentleman number one go first, because he's even more of a gentleman. You know, you finally nailed me. Oh, I've been so, dreaming about that. Well, <laughs> you are alone. Um... Which is actually sort of just uh, a statement about how we are in the universe. We're yes. Doing, we're alone. We're so, so alone. floating in a black chasm of darkness. Anyway, welcome, Matt, welcome to Through the Years. <laughs> but Matt, we're not actually alone because um, after our first episode on Place to Be Nation, we've gotten, as we have after every episode, a lot of lovely comments. And I'd like to thank everybody that hopped on board. I'd like to thank everybody that's been on board since the start. And I think the first thing, and as we should thank Place to Be Nation yet again. And thanks, Cubs, for he really went out of his way with posting messages on his site and on Twitter, letting people know stuff he didn't have to do that we had moved. So I just want to thank him one more time for being so incredibly gracious. He was just like, so excited to get rid of us. That's, <laughs> that's my theory. So It was like we finally moved out. You know, He had been leaving all those hints on our bed, like how to find a job. He just wrote on the cover of another book and left it on our bed. But We still haven't. This is not a paid position. Nope, and it never will be. We're keeping it pure. But uh, <laughs> I like in, in that. In spirit uh, of the pure wrestling title. <laughs> in spirit of the pure wrestling title, we'll get going right near the end. Yes. But um, I'd like to just thank Place to Be Nation and Sieg. That was my horrible Sieg into the plug for Place to Be Nation, where every episode I was thinking, starting with last episode, we try plugging a new, uh, different podcast on Place to Be Nation, because just to show how many good ones there are, and to justify my listening of so many of them. And to kiss some ass. Kiss some ass. Court-mandated kissing of ass. But I can tell you specifically, this, week, this episode, a podcast I really enjoy on Place to Be Nation, that I think if you like this show, you'll probably have a pretty good chance of liking is where the big boys play because that is basically this show done better done about wcw they review every super card you know every clash every pay-per-view from the beginning chad and parv and the episode i would specifically like to recommend is episode 77 of where the big boys play because that is the beach blast 92 episode and not only are you getting a really good show that they review with Sting and Cactus Jack, and just a really good card overall, the half-an-hour Rick Rude-Ricky Steamboat Iron Man match. But they also go over Bill Watts's um, Ten Commandments that he kind of placed in when he became Booker of WCW in the early 90s. And it's just a really interesting kind of revisiting of those rules with a bunch of hindsight and 
I just, it's a good show for review and it's a good show for history and you get a slice of both. So if you're going to listen to one podcast from Place to Be Nation this week, it better be us because you're already here. You'll have no gods before us, no pods before us. But if you're going to listen to two, check out episode 77 of Where the Big Boys Play. Here, here. And now that will take us to the sixth show in Ring of Honor history. And that is Honor Invades Boston, which took place on August 24th, 2002, at the Americal Civic Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts. A quick Google map search showed me that, in fact, Wakefield is about 40 minutes from Boston. It drew Ring of Honor's biggest crowd so far of 500 people, which is probably 25-50 more than they had done in their largest Murphy Rec Center in Philly shows. This is, again, the very first show Ring of Honor ever did outside of the Murphy Rec Center, outside of Philly. And it went really well from the attendance standpoint. In fact, um, going to the Observer at the time, he said the show, Dave Meltzer says the show went three and a half hours. He said it was a successful debut. They opened with a history of pro wrestling in Boston speech, talking about big moments in history, and specifically did not mention WrestleMania 14. So, Did, did he mention the, who gave the speech? No, he didn't, actually. And the speech Weird. is not, not on the tape. So that's something, obviously, they edited for time, or maybe that was just for the live audience. But... It must have been the show as a whole a success because Dave mentions, with the success in a new market, the company right now has a goal of running one show per month in Philadelphia and one show per month in the Boston area, as well as, as, well as expanding into new markets. They are running both September 21st and October 5th in Philadelphia as an experiment to see if they can pull it off. Ring of Honor is basically budgeted to where they need 400 to 500 fans as a break-even on house shows but their profits are made by selling videos. The deal is, for them to get any serious video business, the shows have to be very good to great, as, a, as people won't buy average or even good videos. So, it's interesting that, um, obviously, Dave was getting word about this, because Ring of Honor did not, in fact, run Boston once a month. It would become, the Massachusetts area would become a regular stop, but it would be more of a every three months ish kind of stop. Yeah, up 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 until maybe like two years into the company, Boston was probably their number, like their their second most frequented place, other than uh, other than Philly, I would say. Up and and then I think probably like New York, New Jersey area kind of usurped it. But that's the thing. Um, Maybe part of that was also, I noticed, they moved around a lot in Massachusetts. They couldn't quite find a stable home the way the Murphy Rec Center would be their home in Philly for quite a while. They'd have one more show in Wakefield, and then they'd kind of bounce around Massachusetts a little bit. So maybe that added to it. And obviously, Ring of Honor would start to expand in the next year, doing a trying out different cities. But they never, for whatever reason, did the once a month that... Apparently, they gave the impression that they would hear. But one other thing about this show that I found really interesting is, is the idea that Ring of Honor was actually scared of this crowd going in. Um, Dave writes in The Observer, those in the company felt this was the best wrestling, and he writes wrestling in quotes, crowd they performed in front of. They were surprised because Revere, 
which is the same market, was famous as a bloodthirsty crowd for ECW, where great matches didn't always get over. They did a barbed wire board match on this show, which they wouldn't do in Philadelphia. Because of that, but because oh, because of that, but the board match didn't really get over. So, I think it was. Inter- I think it's interesting that they uh, had that kind of mindset because this crowd is actually from watching the show just a good crowd and maybe better than the Philly crowds in terms of reaction, not by a ton, but it's also interesting that Dave said they wouldn't do barbed wire in Philly because literally the last show we watched had a match with copious use of barbed wire. No, no, they wouldn't do barbed wire boards in Philly. Oh, the barbed wire makes all the difference. Yeah. You can't, you can't have a board in Pennsylvania. It's the contrast. they, They already have an athletic commission. You can't also have a board and a commission. That's, too many groups of men. I <laughs> um, actually, so an interesting thing I was thinking about with this show is the context of the month that it took place in, because it took place in August of 2002, and the uh, you know the mission statement of ROH was that it was pure wrestling, wasn't sports entertainment crap. They were, you know, they were going back to basics. And if I think a lot of people listening probably remember the WWE in August 2002. It was a month that was notable for its pure sports build to the SummerSlam 2002 main event, which was The Rock against Brock Lesnar, and that was the day after this show, actually, and took place in Long Island. And that was a month where WWE was probably as back to basics in terms of like just heated, serious wrestling booking than at any other point in you know the past couple of decades. And SummerSlam 2002 was a fairly no-frills wrestling show that got really great reviews. So it was, it was inter- it's interesting just to see that ROH is sort of trying to be this thing that really doesn't stand in such contrast to what WWE was doing on this particular month. Now, a couple of, of course, a few weeks later, Raw and SmackDown would go in separate directions, and Raw started doing Katie Vick-related stuff and, and HLA but and you know, Billy and Chuck wedding and right, exactly. ripping off the Christopher Street connection, of course. Right, of course. But the SmackDown remained fairly wrestling centric, and possibly you could argue having a better wrestling than ROH did at the time. Um, WWE's roster was actually pretty insanely loaded with like top top tier wrestling talent. But so so you know ROH kind of had to stand not on its philosophy, but on just the quality of the matches they were putting out. And I think, um, you know, you saw kind of the ups and downs of that uh, on the show tonight. Uh, This is a really, really packed show as far as number of matches. And you mentioned this being a good crowd, and they were. But there were a lot of matches on the show, and I could sense burnout a few times over the course of the show. Yeah, I, I definitely in the main event, this might have been one of the first times where they really liked the main event, but you could tell a couple of lulls where it was just maybe they were getting a little exhausted just from having seen so many segments. This this felt like the most packed, I mean, we can get to it more later, but the most packed kind of, in terms of just, you know, things happening in the ring, so many segments, so many impromptu things. And unlike Road to the Title, it wasn't like the same guys coming back. It was just like they just booked everybody on this show, yeah. basically. And for talking about the real sports thing, how WWE was kind of going a little more to that for this brief period, I just am reminded of how many times during these first few shows that Steve Carino 
would just do that snarky kind of, you know, this isn't sports entertainment. This is wrestling the way you missed it, blah, blah, blah. And so often, you know, I think one of the things we really are learning revisiting this is, you know, they weren't that far in a lot of ways from sports entertainment in these early shows. And like you just mentioned, WWE was kind of sometimes ebbing kind of away from that during this period at times. And then they kind of veer back in the other direction. Yeah, they um, they sort of, like SummerSlam 2002, I, th- I think, sort of out ROH'd ROH in terms of just being a straightforward old school wrestling show, which I think is interesting. But I will say this. This particular card has fewer silly backstage skits than I'd say any of the previous shows that we watched, except for maybe Road to the Title, but I think even this one has less than that. Absolutely. It, it, it has it has that feeling of the first few shows in that there's just a ton of things being thrown out the wall, but most of it is happening in front of an audience as opposed to the other shows. So it, it does give it a different feel, I think, from every other show they've had so far. Even Road to the Title, I think, feels different because of the whole tournament aspect. Like you just mentioned, the you'd see more repeats of talent. There's just... Two more things I think we should get to quickly before the show. And the first is something where basically we're going to, I, I'm going to kind of plant a seed here for future shows and kind of give a little context to the world Ring of Honor was in at the time. Because Ring of Honor was, you know, a Philly based promotion at this point, even though they were expanding a little bit. And the Philly wrestling scene was very different back then. There was. XPW, which was uh, Rod Black's promotion, or Rob Black. There was 3PW, with run by Blue Meanie and Jasmine St. Clair. There was CZW still running, and still to this day running. Um, MLW would come in. Just just a lot, of, a lot of promotions vying for that Philly audience, for the, the ECW fans trying to find a home. And there would be a lot of feuds and back dealing that would in some ways affect ring of honor more on coming shows and so i'm going to read something from the observer that it's going to pay more dividends on future through the years in a couple shows but i want to give some context since it happened right around this show for something that will be happening in the future so from the observer at the time there was a soap opera going on the past two weeks, but when the dust had cleared, XPW will be running a show on August 31st at the ECW Arena in Philadelphia. XPW, after attempting and being turned down in an attempt to use a license from several already licensed Pennsylvania promoters, since it was far too late to get its own license, struck a deal with Joe Blackburn of Heritage Wrestling. The basic gist of XPW is that owner and porn mogul Rob Black who at one point wanted to buy into ECW, loves being in the wrestling business and the reaction it gets him in pissing everyone off. He's willing to lose money to get off on that reaction. So they run their outrageous TV and stunts. XPW has been a hot-button issue in the past, such as when in a publicity stunt, Black claimed he was going to kill a dog live on the internet. Outraged people contacted local Humane Society employees, which made sure it didn't happen, and Black claimed he was never going to do it anyway, just was doing it for the reaction. And another time, tried to get out the story he'd suffered a real stroke, although it was just a TV angle. The Messiah Messiah incident also had everyone freaked out. For people that don't know, 
Messiah was a wrestler at the indie wrestler at the time who was rumored to have been sleeping with Rob Black's wife, Lizzie Borden. Two people came to his house one day and cut off one of his thumbs, attempted to cut off his penis before he fought them off. People always wondered if Rob Black had sent them to do that. It became like a story that was even on America's Most Wanted at the time. Anyway, um, as mentioned here, Black had booked ECW Arena and started selling tickets while not having a license to promote in Pennsylvania. They at first went to Rob Feinstein, because Feinstein and Kevin Kleinrock of XPW have a business relationship related to selling XPW videotapes, and Feinstein, who owns Ring of Honor, and asked to use his license. Ring of Honor turned them down, but did tell them about the Hartford Company, which is where they purchased their bond. Apparently, XPW, when attempting to get a bond from that company, was told they needed a business address within the state of Pennsylvania. They used Feinstein's RF video address without his permission, and XPW actually put a copy of the bond on their website, apparently to prove they were going to be able to run the show. It didn't take long for people to become furious with RF video because of the belief they were helping out XPW. Booker Gabe Sapolsky, in the midst of all this, said that even though the address was used without their permission, that he thought all the goodwill his company had gotten from its well-received shows had gone out the window. It did come out later in the week that Sapolsky's claims were true, and XPW used that address without permission. The Hartford Company confirmed that RF Video specifically called them and told them they had their address used. However, however, even after all that, by the end of the week, the Athletic Commission had approved the date because XPW had access to a license. All this red tape aside, this just shows the silliness in reality of, of Athletic Commissions and pro wrestling. And then a week or two later, Dave kind of just added one line to the story. XPW has targeted ROH as an enemy because of the address and licensing issue. So this will come to fruition in a couple shows. We'll see what XPW does to strike at Ring of Honor. I wonder who wins the battle. <laughs> I mean, only we listeners of the out. show will know. Yeah, but it's just... There will be in the this is this was a bit of a long thing, but it's just to set up. There'll be more juicier tidbits in future shows, where there are just so many little backbiting fights between XPW and CZW and Ring of Honor and 3PW. There's just such sniping going on at the time, and Rob Black is one of those classic sleazy kind of wrestling those figures that thrive at at least in the short term in wrestling. And it, it, it was just funny to me reading at reading this during research that XPW targeted Ring of Honor as an enemy because they had the temerity to not want all their credibility and address used without their permission. Yep, it's weird. Although I will say Gabe was wrong about them losing all their goodwill. I don't think it really no. ended up making much of a difference at all. Yeah, I'm sure Gabe got the vapors, but... Nothing too serious. But one last thing that's moving on from kind of heavy news to more lighter, happier news. Matt, this is Steve Carino and Donnie B's final show announcing for Ring of Honor. Well, Carino would come back, but this is it. And our long national nightmare is coming to an end. Donnie B left the world of professional wrestling to change his name to Donnie T and become the president of the United States. Yes, and our long national nightmare there is maybe well, almost over. I'm not sure. Uh, we can uh, only I, I, uh, I admire your optimism. 
not to get too political, but I'm Canadian after all. But Donnie B, actually, I did a bit of research to find out what happened to Donnie B. And the most I could find was there was a PWI insider column where he gave paid tribute to Iron Mike Sharp after his passing. And at the end of the column, it says that Donnie B went into a career in law enforcement. So I just like to say to Donnie B, everything I've said about you is a joke. I'm sorry. Um, don't hurt me. Don't come after me. My license plates are up to date. I'm sorry. And as I've told you in private before, you're Canadian. If anyone's going to get beaten up over this, it's me. So thanks a lot. You're, you're so close. I'm so close to getting invaded, Matt. We just, I, I have to cover my bases here. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, I-, I couldn't find an exact reason that Donnie B left, ra- w- stopped commenting. But I did find the reason that Steve Carino did. And it's kind of a funny payoff to all this complaining. Because apparently Steve Carino also wasn't that much of a fan of Donnie B because I found a 2003 shoot interview Steve Carino did, and I've kind of summarized it here. And the interesting thing about this 2003 shoot interview was it was done by Ring of Honor, and so like most Ring of Honor shoot interviews, it was conducted by Gabe Sapolsky because he was usually either him or Rob. And so you get this weird thing that would happen in shoot interviews of this time where... Gabe would be interviewing a Ring of Honor wrestler about Ring of Honor, and they'd have to pretend that it wasn't Gabe Sapolsky interviewing them. Like, they would kind of joke about, like, oh, we'll just pretend you're not the booker of the company. So keep in mind that Gabe is asking him this. So during this interview, Gabe asked Steve, you know, you know, how about your uh, Ring of Honor announcing career? And Steve kind of gives this very pointed line where he says, the first couple of tapes, I was real happy with it. And um, as fans of the show will note, those were the two shows that Eric Gargiulo did with Steve. So Carino kind of picks up on this and goes, why did you end up quitting? And Steve at first gives this very diplomatic answer that makes a lot of sense. He says, it was because of the Japan schedule. He, you know, he was the lead gaijin for Zero One and worked in their office. He said moving into the ring for Ring of Honor, as he soon would, he didn't think he had a lot of time between those two things. He didn't want Ring of Honor to become the Steve Carino show with him being both on air as a wrestler and doing the announcing. And he said he would have had to turn into more of a heel commentator, which I think is kind of interesting because we had that... Uh, Twitter uh, fan on Twitter asked Steve Crino why he was being so homophobic on the very first Ring of Honor show, and his response was, you know, oh, I was playing a heel commentator. But in this shoot interview, he talked about how he wanted to be a John Madden type, and in fact, wasn't acting like a heel commentator. So, kind of funny how his words changed over time. But Steve goes on to say, he didn't think he had very good chemistry with Donnie B. He described them as two funny guys trying to be two funny guys on a serious product. I couldn't get comfortable and couldn't get the lines I wanted to hit down because he's an overwhelming personality. Nothing against the guy, personally. Two-collar commentators, no play-by-play guy. And then Gabe actually pushes a little more. He says, you mentioned you were happy with the first couple of tapes. Is, is, so is Donnie why you left? And Crino goes, yeah, I think so. I couldn't get a word in. Donnie would talk, and it was always long. They were four moves ahead when they got to me. So it's pretty interesting that Steve is 
basically say, I mean, I don't think Steve was a great color commentator at this time either, but it's funny to see him to not to see and hear him basically say some of the things we've been saying. Yeah. Although like, I, I sort of don't buy it completely because it wasn't going so well before Donnie B got there in the commentary. And obviously, like I said, Carino got better at commentary, but he was not, not good at this point either. And I, 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 I don't know if he would have really fit going forward. Even, no, if Donnie, I, even if Donnie B had left. I think it was good that, that they both left, obviously. But it, I guess we'll get into the commentary maybe a little bit more later. But I guess we should finally start with the show proper. And the show opens with a backstage low-key promo, which is the third straight show to open with a backstage low-key promo. So really just pushing, you know, that low-key is the face of Ring of Honor. This one, he just goes over the events of the last month's show crowning a champion where he won the title. It's pretty, uh, pretty standard as a promo goes. He claims that he lost 10 pounds during the match, the fabled super hot Iron Man match. I believe it. And the observer actually said this too. So before this show came out, so I definitely believe I, I, I undersold it then last time. Cause I said, they probably all lost five pounds. Loki's claiming he lost 10. So that's, if you want to cut weight for the UFC, just do one of these 60-minute Ironman matches, apparently, because yeah, you'll easy, drop... That's the easy way to do it. Do it in 120 degrees. Whip, just bam, get, whip, whip bam, boom. <laughs> whip, bam, boom. No sweat. Literally um, lots of sweat, but no sweat. Lots of no sweat. Um, he set up his title defense for AJ Styles tonight. Uh, not much else to say about this segment. Well, so Loki does oh. this thing in his promos at this point, where he repeats a phrase, and like, and be, you know, like he'll start multiple sentences with the same phrase, and this time it was, or he ends end sentences with the same phrase. I should say he's like, I wrestled for sixty minutes and I did it for one thing. I lost ten pounds in one hour and I did it for one thing. And so that was his that that's that was his line for tonight. I did it for one thing. And that's something that he I've noticed he's been doing a lot in promos is where he does the repetition. So that's the style that he's going for. Uh not the best. Not the best style. That is one of those things I uh never noticed and the second you said it, like my brain just raced to him doing that. Like, oh my God, he does do that. That is why you are the perceptive one of the two of us. Um we get a techno music video next, as usual. I was disappointed that they didn't give us the... They didn't use all the crazy cutaway effects they did last time. And we get one more little pre-show segment where Dixie and Izzy of Special K are outside the building standing next to a dumpster. So they're doing this Steve Credo and Simply Luscious style right next to a dumpster. And it's just always funny to see these guys hang out next to dumpsters in wide open spaces where you could be anywhere else. Uh, they cut a promo, just not much. They act goofy. Izzy asks for water. Dixie pours it out. Elax pops out of a, out of the dumpster, which is why they were near the dumpster, and with water, acting all crazy and Elax-like, scaring the shit out of them. He tells them that they have a match tonight. I don't know how Elax knew this, and they didn't. Izzy and Dixie don't care. They say they're just there to have fun because they're crazy raver kids. So this is the first 
special case segment, I guess. Well, actually, no, because we had that one where they were dancing with Brian XL yes, the on the last special show. case segment. Yeah, but we're but we're learning more about these deep, deep characters. They just they're just they don't care. They just want to have fun. That's literally their catchphrase, basically. <laughs> Which is always a funny thing because it kind of makes other. I mean, I'm not going to look too much too deeply into Special K, but the idea of characters that don't really care about wrestling that kind of makes you look bad when you lose to them. Like we don't even care about this shit. This is just what we're passing time before we go to the rave tonight. But to be but, fair, to be fair, not too many wrestlers lost to them. <laughs> Although Xy and Dizzy, I mean Izzy and Dixie were tag team champions. We'll, but get, we'll get to it. We'll get there. The we start the show with our first match, proper match, and that is Quiet Storm taking on the Amazing Red, and the Amazing Red defeats Quiet Storm six minutes five seconds via pinfall after he hits the infrared and a standing shooting star press. Uh, Matt, would you like to take this one? Well, uh, Red, um, so he's he's supposed to miss a kick, but Storm gets hit in the head, so that was kind of rough, but. So they start out with like usual tumbles and arm drags, but like a lot of the times I didn't think that looked that good in other matches, and I thought they looked really good here, and the crowd is pretty appreciative. And I actually I appreciated that they started the show this time with like a real competitive match between two guys people cared about, which hasn't been done since what the, the second ROH show ever, right? With with which had um Dragon against uh, Daniels. Yeah. So I, I appreciated that. Um, so, and I think the crowd did too. Um, so Storm sort of acts like a heels by, um, by shaking Red's hand, but like kicking him, uh, in, in the stomach. Um, there's, by the way, I noticed just in the first match, this is sort of like an ECW fan cam type of vibe, excuse me, because there's no hard cam. It's just totally the ringside handheld cameras for the entire show. So, and because... Because of that, this is the first show, and I forget if we're going to get this on future shows, but because they have two handheld cams instead of one handheld and a hard cam, we get lots of um, a lot of instant replays from the other hard, the other handheld camera angle. So it seems like they try to tell these guys always stand on opposite ends of each other. So a lot of times you'd see a big move, and they'd instantly cut to an instant replay of the exact same big move from the exact opposite side. Yeah, and and I think it kind of added a cool little thing to the show. Like I said, it felt like those like RF video ECW fan cams. Um, so there's something to do with that. Um, but because of all that, it's kind of hard to get a sense of just how big the crowd seemed, you know, without that hard camera where you sort of saw the whole thing. But um, so they did. A, they do a slap exchange in the middle of the ring. Um, there's kind of a cool. Uh, hang on, neck breaker into a gory driver by Quiet Storm. I thought Quiet Storm actually looked really good here. He does a Canadian Destroyer, which which you mentioned he might have actually invented the Canadian Destroyer, but I don't know if we have any way of knowing that, but it is certainly a couple of years before we ever saw Petey Williams do it, who was just starting his wrestling career at this point. Um, and this was definitely a Canadian, Canadian Destroyer, right? It wasn't like modified, it was like the exact same move. So no, was, it, it was a really good one too. Like he did a little bit of the running start, which I think makes the move better. It makes it a little more plausible. I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because it was obviously the first time that Carino and Donnie had seen it, and they freak out about the move. 
And it seemed like everybody in the match didn't know how to react to it because the ref then counts a pin while Red's head is still between Storm's legs from the destroyer. And his shoulders aren't even touching, like their foot off the mat on Storm's legs. So I, I, I just thought, like, no one knows how to react to this move. It, it's just, you know, sur- surprising everybody at this point. Yeah, I guess because the ref sort of treated it like it was almost like one of those Code Red style, like, flip, sunset, flip, bomb sorts of things, which, mm-hmm. where the shoulders are on the mat. But this is obviously a, more of a pile driver. Um, uh, on, the, on the commentary, Donnie B was comparing uh, Quiet Storm to Chris Benoit, which I'd never thought of. But th- there is some similarity in, like, the way they're built and... You know, Storm does go for a top rope headbutt, but but Red hits the hits sort of a um, a diamond cutter on his way down. Uh, Red goes for some some kind of confusing thing off the top rope, but, but he misses, and, um, and and then he you know, he misses an infrared, but he hits a Red Star press for the win. And I thought this was fun. I think it could, maybe could have used three or four extra minutes even. Uh, I think this was. Definitely the second best opener in ROH history. Not that that's saying much. It was the only other one that was a match. But I thought they they did the right match for opening a show like this. Yeah, I, I enjoy this. I mean, again, it, with the caveat, it's only six minutes, so they, they, there's only so much they could do. But for just a six minutes to get the crowd pumped up and you know, big exciting spots, I, I don't know how much more they could have done to accomplish that goal better. Um. One thing I thought that was really cool was even in a, in a match with all these big spots, like Red does his flying flatliner, which he calls the red alert or the red eye, depending on where he wrestled. He, you know, he did a big dive to the floor. He did this cool tiger mask running, running up the guy kick, but he kind of did it with a twist. He does all these cool spots, but some of the biggest reactions in this match are just for him throwing hard kicks. Like, this was a crowd that really seemed to enjoy guys beating each other up, and they would get more of that later. Hard kicks were really in in the early 2000s. And unfortunately, like you said before about Red hitting guys hard, Red would Red had a little bit of low key in him where that would come back in a show a few months down the road. Well, maybe a, a, quite a bit later, but Red could hurt guys a little bit with some of those kicks going to the back to the canadian destroyer thing i'll give contact info at the end of the show but if anyone knows an earlier instance of the canadian destroyer please tell me because i'm genuinely curious if quiet storm invented this and why i think he might have is pd williams had just barely started wrestling in 2002 around this time and Quiet Storm does a Canadian Destroyer, and when I was reading Observers from a couple years later recently, um, Dave mentions, I guess he had done probably done some article of the issue before about Petey Williams and the, and the Canadian Destroyer. He had written something about it, and then he, he did kind of a correction where he said, Amazing Red actually did the Canadian Destroyer in 2002 while you know, Petey Williams was still learning wrestling. And it's funny because he obviously is referencing this match and getting the person wrong because he said it was amazing red doing it on a ring of honor show in Boston in 2002. So I think it's pretty obvious. He means quiet storm doing it to amazing red in 2002 
But the fact that that example stood out in Dave's mind as the earliest example he could think of of a Canadian destroyer makes me wonder, maybe Quiet Storm really did invent the Canadian destroyer. And if he did, that's a huge blow to my country. That was one of the two things we had. We had the destroyer and we have maple syrup. You've taken one of them, if that's the case. I, I So someone please, please tell me that Petey Williams was backyard wrestling in 2000 and did it. If, if you know who invented it, please save my country's pride. Please, I'm begging of you. Next thing, next thing I'm going to tell you is that Alanis Morissette is actually American. <gasps> Matt. Just don't. You're losing your your gentleman cred here. Well, Do you not know, twist the knife. You learn. You learn, huh, T- Trevor? You learn. Oh my. You learn. <laughs> um. Am I gonna? Yeah. Get, am I gonna get sued? No, you're gonna get requests to sing more every episode. The more you do it, the better it's gonna get. Gotcha. Um. Red. I actually really enjoyed that. Red. So yeah, the other thing is red finished with a. Like you said, the infrared, and one thing I'm noticing in, in these matches is the infrared is a cool, really cool move. Red can only pull it off half the time. He's either really crashing hard on a guy's legs, or in this case, he almost completely misses Storm and just barely clips the top of his head, and then he follows it up with the standing shooting star press. But I would not want to take the infrared, because it feels like he can barely pull it off, and you're lucky if he doesn't just completely kill you on it. And other than that, though, again, fun for six minutes. Just put your, you know, check your brand at the door, see guys do cool stuff, hit each other hard. Like, a good way to a good way to open the show. And from there, we get a little post-match handshake between Red and Storm, as is customary. But then Elax, Izzy, Dixie, and Brian XL run in to attack. And this is Donnie B's first mention of the name Special K. This is the first time Special K, the name of the stable, is uttered. You know, even though technically I would say the group started on the last show, this is the first time they're referred to by that name. Um, this leads to the SAT and Chris Devine running in, and that leads immediately to our next match, which is the very first scramble match. Chris Devine and the SAT of Joel and Jose Maximo defeating Special K of Brian XL, Dizzy and Izzy, Dixie and Izzy with Elax now, in now, nine minutes. Sorry, go oh, ahead. Say this, so finish saying the time. I'm sorry. Yeah. In nine minutes, six seconds after one of the Maximos pinned Brian XL after the Spanish fly. Yeah. And that, so Elax joined Special K just because he happened to be near them in a dumpster. Um, so they, they they actually literally they said they didn't care they didn't care so much they didn't care if somebody who just they happened to bump into who was standing in a dumpster b- randomly by them just joined their stable and hang around with them and join their matches and got involved in their livelihood just because they happened to bump into him near a dumpster so that's a whole other level of not caring. Matt, he brought up them a bottle of water. I mean. You, you got to give him something back for that bottle of water. That's at least a dollar fifty item, probably, at that building. Yeah, well, he also informed that they had a match, so he's he's really making moves. This guy. Yeah, it's amazing that Elax, like, he's one of the guys on the show, on a show where it feels like they're throwing so so many guys at you. I mean, why did they feel the need to pay Elax? I don't even know if they paid him, but 
just having another guy on the show, you know, Elax just randomly showing up for a skit and to to come on the show, I have no idea. Um, before I talk about the match, I'll mention this is Brian Excel's final match as an ROH regular. He would come back for a couple of the big special K crazy hundred men scramble matches, but this is his last match as a regular every show performer. And it's a, it's, it may be because, I don't know if he ever ended up doing this, but the Observer at the time said that Brian XL is moving to Puerto Rico with his, with his family. So I would assume that's why that he, although I saw him on Cage Match doing research that he was working for other indies still, but maybe ROH just didn't want to pay to get him from Puerto Rico. It's interesting, but, when they say his family, does that mean like he moved there with like his parents? Because he did seem pretty young. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, because with family, I would, to me, that does suggest parents, because I don't think you would say that if that was his wife, but I'm not sure. And Brian XL is still wrestled for many more years after this, but I guess Puerto Rico was kind of the breaking point for Ring of Honor. Well, he, and, the, the, his, actually, his greatest legacy in ROH was that he was the bridge to the creation of Special K. That is actually his biggest legacy, along with losing to Eddie Guerrero in the main event of Night of Appreciation. That's right. The official main event, mm-hmm. let it be known. And this is a crazy, big, sloppy spot fest. This is, I would say this is a better version, but uh, this is a more indulgent version of all the Mikey Weprick student spot fests of the first few shows. It's sloppier it's got even crazier moves it's longer than some of them well maybe not actually this is that might actually be shorter than some of them it's just just crazier all around lots of exciting stuff lots of stuff i was constantly on edge watching this match it felt i was always were it felt like everyone was close to killing themselves or killing somebody else at some point Dizzy and Ixie, Dixie, I keep saying Dizzy, Dixie Dizzy and, and Ixie, that's a good name for them. God, this is, this is going to be one of the banes of my existence on these shows, but Dixie and Izzy, right near the start, they both take a turn getting dropped right on their heads by the SAT. I thought they looked pretty good, you know, for their first full match that we get to see. They, you know, they, they bumped well and did big moves just with the with the best of them and they'd be the guys of this match that stuck around the longest in ring of honor i thought brian xl looked sub backyarder in this i i thought this was one of the worst individual performances i've seen from a wrestler in ring of honor thus far he has some of the worst looking hurricane ranas in wrestling history and it, i would normally when i see something this bad i would write it off as oh he screwed one up I've seen him do these Ranas on multiple shows. They are absolutely awful. They're like he barely sometimes gets his arms at their armpits and just kind of takes their body over. Um, he does an absolutely embarrassing bump where he gets hit and then he stumbles halfway across the ring to, into the ropes and then tries to take himself over the ropes and like barely can. He fails halfway through and has to jump himself over the ropes again. He... Uh, when they, everyone does a big dive train, he his dive, he falls so close to the apron, everyone basically has to catch him so he doesn't hit right on the ring apron and kill himself. It's funny because Brian XL 
got, other than Red, probably the most individual attention in backstage segments in the first few Ring of Honor shows. He he got, you know, the, the Eddie Guerrero thing. And yet, he, he you know, he was going to be, it looked like, the leader of Special K because he was the impetus for the group forming, if not for this move to Puerto Rico. But yet, I think he's the worst of all of them. He looks at, maybe it's just ring, his Ring of Honor performances, but he looks absolutely terrible here, Matt. Oh, well, completely. But as far as what he's ever, what I've ever seen of him, which is just what he's done in ROH, he's definitely the worst of all the Special K guys. It's not. I don't think it's even. It's even close. I mean, maybe some of the like, you know, guys that, that show up for a very brief run later on are worse. But definitely compared to Izzy and Dixie, he's a lot worse. That said, despite his bad performance, I thought that this match was pretty good. Um, for one of these matches, at least comparatively. It's the first match, like you said, that they call the scramble rules match where there's where you fall out of the ring, someone else comes in, and there's just like a, lots of the moves and stuff. And I'd say it's pretty fast-paced. Um, I think I thought that the SAT looked better than usual. Um, you know, the, uh, they do the uh, whole that the Special K have no respect because they're going to a rave after the show gimmick, which, you know, becomes... You know, this is kind of something they say so many times that it's like, oh my god, stop saying this, by like the sixth month of the gimmick's existence. But for right now it's right now it's new, and I, I couldn't keep up with some of Donnie B's moves, move names. Uh, at one time, he calls, they, I think it was like a space flying tiger job, he calls it a tiger star press. He calls a, sta- <laughs> he calls a standing moonsault a front star press. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um He's really Donnie being it up in his final performance, I will say. Um, but I, um, but I think it's. I thought it was really cool. There was like this crazy, like uh, Guerrero special double submission thing on Dixie and Brian XL by the SAT, and Donnie B calls it the Human Taffy Machine, and I actually think that's a perfectly fine name for it. I, ca- I can't really fault him for that one. Uh, I can't think of a better name for that one. And um, they do a double underhook power bomb. Onto Izzy, uh, the match breaks down. There's a double p- tower power bomb on Izzy and Dixie, where they both get power bombed, like one on top of the other. Spanish fly on Brian XL ends it, and I th- I wrote that it was sloppy and ridiculous, but very entertaining, and the crowd loved it. So I think so far for what you what you expect to get at the opening couple matches on an indie show in 2002, I feel like they've delivered so far in the first 20 minutes of the show. And this is something Gabe would do often where he would love to have these kind of matches sometimes open, like the big crazy spot fest. So he gives you two here. And I agree. I thought this was the best of all the Whipwreck student spot fests so far. It, it, it was sloppier in some ways, but it, it shot higher. It didn't. There, it was quicker paced, just even crazier things attempted. And yeah, and actually, if you actually go back and watch some of the early ones, I wouldn't say this is sloppier. They do more stuff, and it's sloppy, but I would say it's notably less sloppy. Like the, like the moves actually hit in a cooler way than they do in some of those earlier matches. Hmm. It might have also been. I was just for some reason this match. I got really like I said before. I got really scared watching. Like I was kind of on the edge of my seat, even though knowing these guys survived it. It, it just. There, there was something about watching these guys, in a way it adds to the matches, where I'm constantly just like, oh shit, you know, don't don't kill yourselves, and... Please don't uh, die, please don't die. Please don't die, even though you're not Paul London. Uh, Elax even does a, a dive here, which 
I thought was kind of a goofy thing where Ring of Honor is always, you know, pushing so hard. You know, we follow the rules. We have the strict rules in the Code of Honor. And Elax is a guy who's just a second. He's not a wrestler in the match. And right in front of the referee, he does a dive from the top turnbuckle to the outside on everybody. But, again, scramble rules. This is the first of a match that Gabe would fall in love with, these scrambles. And even though the scramble rules are technically just a big match where if you if someone goes to the outside, then someone can come in without touching, tagging, really what scramble rules matches just meant was crazy spot fests where everyone comes in and does shit. Pretty much. So, at this point, at the end of the match... Chris Devine gets on the mic, and he calls out low-key, saying he doesn't even want a title shot. He just wants to test himself to see if he, if Chris Devine's as good as he as he, th- he thinks he is himself. And low-key comes out, and we get something really weird, because if Chris Devine was seeing how he is te- was testing himself against low-key, he flunked with a Q-, minus, I would say, because... Loki destroys Chris Devine in 53 seconds by making him submit to the Dragon Clutch. Um, I have no idea why they did this. Loki comes out early in the show now for this. He beats the living... I mean, he just does a standard Loki squash. He kicks him. At one point, Chris Devine is beaten to the point where he's... He's not intentionally doing it, but he's cowering. He's, He's got his head on the mat covering himself. He gets squashed in under a minute, and it not that Chris Devine's a big guy to worry about, but I don't know what the point of this what is what the point of this was. And at one point Donnie B calls this a valiant effort by Chris Devine. He lost in fifty three seconds, and the only offense he had were two or three chops he threw at low key before the bell when he ambushed him. This is- I have no- yeah, this go is on. the sort of thing that if WWE did it, um, people would really shit on them pretty hard for like just having their main eventer squash a guy. Like the, uh, there was really, I mean, I, I don't really have much to say about it other than like I, I have no idea why they did it or what what good it did anybody. Like it was supposed to the idea was supposed to introduce the crowd to Loki's moves. I mean, I think that the crowd is probably mostly familiar with them, and that was not necessary. So I think this was just a waste. And and. Yeah, everything on every this crowd seemed to know everybody on the show, and so you did not need to introduce Low Key. It did no service to anybody. It just filled another couple minutes of time. From there, we get a promo from Japan because we get Christopher Daniels in Japan in front of a big Japanese wrestling poster, which he humorously has taped a picture of Curry Man to, which is his Japanese masked Mishinoko Pro gimmick. He gives us a promo where he addresses a few things. He he lets us know he's in Japan, so he won't be at the show tonight. It's, it's the first Ring of Honor show. Christopher Daniels is missing. He feels like he's been screwed out of the title by Low Key. He says a new member of the Prophecy will debut on this show, even though he's not there. And it's just the usual Christopher Daniels promo where he's good at taking like three or making three or four points when a lot of guys in the promotion at this point are struggling with just getting even one point across. Yeah, definitely, I would say the only actually actively good promo guy in the company at this point. There are other guys who are decent, not bad. Daniels is the only one that's actually cutting good promos. And it's worth 
I guess noting at this point, like I just said, Daniels is not on the show. This is the first one he misses. And Spanky is not on this show because Zero One decided to book him late for another tour. So this is a show where, the, you know, they're losing two of their big names, two of the four people in their main event from the last show. And they still managed and, to have 14 matches, so they got a lot of options, I guess. <laughs> and one of the options, maybe not the best option, was... Don Marcos wrestling the Christopher Street Connection and the Christopher Street Connection of Buffy and Mace with Allison Danger beat Don Marcos in 341 when Mace pinned Dunn after the Gay Basher, which is their double team finisher where one guy hoists their opponent up kind of like they're going to do a heart attack and then the other guy comes off with a big butt drop, kind of like the doink whoopee cushion. So like yep. a, an assisted whoopee cushion, basically, yep. which is also a great thing to buy from a dollar store. Um, <laughs> Matt is, it's your turn to say anything. I don't know what much, how much you can go into about a three minute, 41 second Christopher street connection squash, but um, here you well, go. Well, I, um, I thought it was interesting to have the Christopher street connection on offense because they really hadn't been given a chance to do that. And I thought they actually, but Buffy at least looked kind of okay. Like he, his moves actually were decent, and they had some like tag team strategy where they were like cutting off the ring. So I mean, there was nothing to the match, but you could see that the Christopher Street Connection were more than what uh, ROH was letting them be. Um, I will say this: it does seem like the Boston audience was more homophobic than the Philadelphia audience. That's not entirely surprising, but like no one in the audience wanted a kiss. And one audience. No, there was a guy. There was a guy. Well, well, yeah. So I wrote. No one in the audience wanted a kiss until they, until like near the very end of the entrance, a guy called them over, and they and they kissed him on the cheek, and he was like kind of like, but. I thought that guy had very poor form because he encouraged them to kiss him. And then just when he's leaning in, he, he turns so he gets the kiss on the cheek and, and like the neck instead. And come on, guy. If you're, if you're going to get the milk, get the whole milk. Don't, don't skimp out. Don't treat yourself. You know, get the full kiss. That's right. And also, one audience member screamed at Buffy, you're going to hell. So I never heard that in the Philly crowd. So I do think that this is a... Um, Legitimately, a more homophobic crowd than the crowds in Philly. Um, the uh, the announcers are slightly less negative in the sense that they call them oddly entertaining. They still do the whole like "ooh" with some of you know or "ew" with some of Christopher Street Connections antics. So it's not perfect. Um, it's still um, you know slightly negative. They still do the whole alternative lifestyle stuff, but um, but yeah, I uh, nothing much to say about this. They're uh, they're slowly evolving their um, their portrayal of the CSC, slowly but surely. It, it was the interesting thing to me, other than how they treated the Christopher Street connection, was it was weird to see after the way they've been treated in these first few shows, the Christopher Street connection kind of getting a squash match where they're doing the squashing. They were chopping Don and Marcos fairly hard and dominating and doing it kind of serious while then mixing in some of their more gay themed spots and like you said they're one of the bravest things these guys did is buffy proceeded to start this is what prompted the guy telling him that they were going to hell he was kissing and licking a couple of the guardrails and you're pretty brave to lick some of those guardrails well you know in the bible it says a lot about doing sexual acts with guardrails so that's why he said he was going to hell 
spare the guardrail, spoil the child. Uh, yeah, like it was, it was a goofy, crazy thing that he was doing. They were obviously inciting those reactions, even if those were pretty horrible, unjustifiable actions to tell guys like you're going to hell. But like you said, the announcers continue to kind of evolve a little bit where, as you mentioned, all of a sudden now the Christopher Street connection are strangely and slightly entertaining. So they're slowly continuing to dip their foot in a little more in the waters of maybe these guys aren't bad. So we never get to see Carino and Donnie B fully go the uh, get to the point where they're where they fully embrace the Christopher Street connection. Sadly enough, because they they leave, and I wonder just Gargu- Gargiulo was definitely the most homophobic of all of them, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes. In terms of how his announcing, so we never found out how he would uh, if he could ever appreciate the Christopher Street connection. If we ever get Gabe on, we'd have to ask him: Were they building to a big thing where at the first year anniversary show? Steve and Donnie just came out of the closet and they're like, we're gay, you know, we were we were overcompensating. You are we, know, this are we officially trying to get Gabe on now? Is that, our, is that a thing? Because if so, I'm all, I'm all in on that one. That's going to be our big, huge series finale where <laughs> we, we talk to the voice of God and we go, we, we challenge him, you know, why did you create us? Why, why have you let us down in some ways? You know, what was it like to see Jimmy Jacobs come out to a field of cell phones Gabe if you're listening and you feel like if you have all the time in the world to sit down and watch the entire three hours of your unscripted DVD um, then you could be on the next show with us (laughs) but you do have to watch the entire show and take take notes and bring your notes from the time all that stuff well it was unscripted they didn't have any notes that's right but he probably took a journal about how sad he was that he had to unscript it so (laughs) Just a lot of eraser marks. I should make all these unscripted jokes next month. You're giving away the story here, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, saying um too much, note to self. Scoot Andrews takes on Mike Tobin with Danny Drake, and Scoot squashes Mike Tobin in two minutes, three seconds, after he hits a force of nature. There's... So we're at two squashes so far. Yes. Count them, two. There's not much to this. It's a squash. Danny Drake is still injured in a wheelchair like he was on the last show. Scoot comes to the ring wearing a Boston Bruins hat to pander to the crowd, Sonny Sakai style. So that's what he learned from his friend Sonny Sakai on Road to the Title. Sumi Sakai. Oh, Sumi. That's my big error. But Sumi... It's unforgivable. Unforgettable. Unscripted. Unforgettable. But Sumi comes with... Uh, she came with the Phillies hat, so he comes with the Bruins hat. Um, Tobin has a nice springboard leg drop, but shortly after he does that, he and Andrews have an ugly miscommunication spot where Toby's coming off the, Tobin's coming off the ropes. (laughs) That's that's your cute nickname for him. That's what I call him when we're just hanging out being chums. When Toby's (laughs) coming right off the ropes and both guys have completely different ideas about what to do and they kind of just freeze in the middle of the ring so they whip him again and do the right spot not much to say this is a two-minute squash yep i have nothing to say about this yeah other than it's just giving two guys a payday i guess it then xavier comes out and he re- references scoot beating him on the last show and he challenges him to an impromptu rematch where Xavier beats Scoot Andrews in four minutes, four seconds after a 450 splash. 
The commentators here mentioned that Prince Nana was supposed to be there and couldn't make it, so I assume he was Xavier's original opponent. Yeah. This is Scoot Andrews' last match in Ring of Honor, I think. This is it for him. And not the... Not a great run for Scoot, and I didn't think he looked bad, but he didn't exactly get spotlighted or... He never had the chance to have, like, a good match at all. He, would, he was always wrestling Xavier, pretty much, or getting <laughs> squat, or getting squat. I mean, really, every single one of his matches involved in Xavier, except for the one squash against Daniels, right? Yeah, and the Toby match, the old Toby that he yeah, had I right guess, now. I guess if you count that one, yeah. Old Toby, but I guess that was going to be his big send-off, but... This is if you've ever seen any of the other Xavier Scoot Andrews matches. This is four minutes of every single one of them. Not bad, but nothing special. They do, they do a lot. They do a lot of like whips, and I always think if there's too many matches where I mean, if a match has too many like whips and whips into the corner and whip, I, I always think that's a sign of a not good match because it means that they hmm. that they can't that they're not able to use wrestling as a transition that well. It just it's not 100 percent of the time, but I find that it's a decent rule of thumb. Actually, now that I think about it, I would agree. Yeah, because you're you're basically just setting up each spot by setting up a spot. Yeah, exactly. And but otherwise, this it's the usual perfectly adequate and forgettable match between these two. Um, the Is one it, thing I guess were you going to say Xavier hits a big Arabian press to the floor? Yeah, the, be- yeah, yeah. That's right. The springboard moonsault where it does the the springboards off the like off the rope onto the like then and then jumps to hit the Arabian press from like the middle of the ropes. And that's like a move that he's done, that he does a bunch, but this is its ROH debut. And I think it's one of, it's definitely the coolest thing that he does. And it is a reminder also that he wins with the 450. He was a good athlete for a guy carrying that much muscle. There's just something in these performances where there, there's something missing from him. And perfectly average match, but I mean, average for four minutes, I guess, but I don't know if Scoot... That's that's the problem with this. I, I'm watching Scoot Andrews' Ring of Honor run. I don't know if he deserved better. I thought he showed flashes of being good. But again, like you said, it, it, he worked mostly just with Xavier. And a lot of these matches didn't even get that much time. So I really don't know how to judge him. But for whatever reason, Ring of Honor didn't decided not to keep using him. Yeah, I mean... Uh, he was definitely. Uh, I don't really. There's not really much to say. It was a fairly unremarkable run, and he was just one of those guys that didn't make the cut when they started kind of codifying their roster a little bit more in terms of who they were really going to feature. And the the one thing I noticed on commentary is they really tried to sell this as a big end of the feud, uh, an end to a big feud, and it just it felt anything but that. It it felt the worst way a feud can an- feel at the end, which is it felt like no one was any better off than when they started. It, it felt like everyone was exactly where they were when this started, if not maybe a little bit worse. I I mean, obviously in Scoot's case it was worse because he went from being a guy that was booked for every show to a guy that was never booked again. So just not, not the matches were never bad, but it's just not a good feud at all. Yeah, and, and they had big plans for Xavier, which we'll get to next month. And, I, you know, maybe those big plans were sort of contingent on him not being impressive, which is interesting <laughs> to say, but it sort of, you know, when we get there, it sort of makes sense, right? Yeah. 
we'll, we'll have to explore that theory more month by month through the years or the next year as we see Xavier's reign. But I guess there's nothing else to say about this match. So Michael Shane and Biohazard are pulling up to the building in a car. And a cocky Michael Shane gets out of the car and brags that once you win a contract like he did on the last show, you get flown in, you get sweet rent cars he tells Biohazard that if he sticks with Michael Shane, he'll be all right in this world. And then he tells uh, Biohazard to park the car and get his bags, because he's a heel now. Yep, officially heel. I guess last month was his heel turn, but this month they really are like, all right, we're going with this Michael Shane heel character. And that leads directly to Michael Shane being led to the ring by Biohazard, taking on Paul London, being led to the ring by Rudy Boy Gonzalez. Shane beats Paul London via pinball in 12 minutes, 44 seconds, with a small package. Matt, I thought this was the best match on the show so far. What did you think? I thought it was good. I thought maybe not as good as I, um, as I expected, but it was, it was definitely a good match. Um, you know, they, they definitely go with the, the Shane heel thing, right? Shane jumps London from behind at the beginning. Um, and London really just comes back pounding Shane on the mat. Uh, Shane gets backdropped onto Biohazard on the floor. And the, but London dives onto both of them. Uh, and Carito on commentary gets angry at Rudy Boy. I, I, at this point, I was getting really sick of the whole Carino-Rudy Boy thing on commentary. I just think it came off as grating. I thought this match was maybe the bottoming out of the Donnie B-Carino uh, pairing. Uh, except for maybe the whole thing with Carino and Simply Lushes from Night of Appreciation. But <laughs> but it was just the whole thing of Carino getting on Rudy Boy, uh, Donnie B getting on Michael Shane for being despicable. And it, it was just, I don't know, they were just very irritating in this match. I, I thought this was like the match where I was like, all right, thank God they're not, they're not going to be commentating anymore. I, I just couldn't stand it. But the match itself was good. Um, they did. They did a really crazy spot that I'm surprised doesn't get more play in like highlight reels and stuff, or didn't. You know when they were still doing highlight reels of early ROH, which was where London springboards to the top with his back to the ring, and Shane shoves him off. You know past the the ring post, and he flies over the ring post onto a guardrail and just completely takes out the guardrail. I thought the spot was visually insane. It was probably actually insane. The crowd went nuts for it. Then Shane goes right after him. He throws him into other guardrails. Um, he does like a, a, a over-the-head belly-to-belly that Donnie B, of course, calls a bear hug suplex um, <laughs> and sends London. He does it, but he does it into the turnbuckle, So, uh, which is you don't see it as often back then. Um, London comes back and slams Shane's head into the corner or into the canvas, I should say. Uh, London hits Shane with a series of chops and then does uh, does sort of a top rope X-factor by Shane onto London um, for two. Uh, then Shane cranks on London's legs. The crowd is starting to get really behind London. This is really the first time he gets to do the whole face-in-peril thing, and he's not surprisingly really good at it. Um, so, it so there's a big applause when he makes the ropes. Uh, he reverses a powerbomb into Arana for two. Then there's a corkscrew backsplash on the floor onto Shane. Um, and the announcers play up the fact that Shane is injured like Marvel was after the uh, corkscrew backsplash uh, thing. and um, Or sent, this corkscrew sent on, I guess I should say. Don't want to go all Donnie B on you. And um, 
so the ref pushes London away as he's trying to like go after Shane, and like they're really playing it up like Shane is hurt. And they're like, oh, this is really sad. You know, this is what happened to Chris Marvel. And while this is happening, Shane rolls London up uh, for the pin. So sort of like he's playing possum. And um, yeah, it was good, well worked. I didn't think it was memorably good, other than that one spot. But it, it was signs of what was to come. And um, and I think Shane uh, made a good showing of himself here. Um, uh, after the match, um, they had they do a whole thing with simply Luscious in the ring, and she invites Shane to join the prophecy. And Rudy Boy interrupts. He tells Shane not to join and. Rudy, I don't know what his history is, but he was as bad at promos as pretty much any of the indie guys, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so he, uh, he asked Shane not to join. Shane super kicks Luscious, um, then, uh, then Rudy Boy, and Carino does not even seem upset that Michael Shane super kicked his girlfriend. He was just like, oh, it's business, whatever, which was also annoying. And Shane and Biohazard beat up London post-match. Shane drops the big elbow on London, and there's a round of applause for London after he gets up after the match. So this is like a big... They're really going for it with Shane here. This is like his big moment to win a match that was good, that got some decent amount of... that got some decent time, and then just really be a dastardly heel beating everybody up and being a loner. In fact, in The Observer at the time, before the show, or right... I think maybe reviewing the show, Dave notes he's been told that Michael Shane is going to be given a strong push. So Ring of Honor was really high on young Michael Shane at this time. I agree. I thought this was a good match, but just good. Like, like you, you mentioned, you referred to it as not memorably good. Yeah. I would say it's a good match, but nothing that's ever going to be on a best of list or something you recommend. It's just good. I thought it was refreshing though on this card, because even though I had enjoyed a bunch of the stuff on this card, like the first two spot fests, everything was short and crazy. And so it was kind of refreshing to just get a regular wrestling match that went, got a decent amount of time, you know, almost 13 minutes. It was almost like I love junk food, but after you eat a bunch of junk food, sometimes you appreciate just a simple salad and a chicken breast. I felt this was kind of your simple salad and a chicken breast. It wasn't, it wasn't amazing, but it was good and kind of, and what I feel like the card needed at this point. There was a little bit of intensity, not a ton, but throwing punches at the start. And at one point, Paul London rammed uh, Michael Shane's head by the back of a head into the mat a few times. So they fought a little, like they had a little bit of hate between each other. Like you said, the Paul London spot where he gets shoved off the top turnbuckle into the, the guardrail. That's, if you have access to the show, worth going out of your way to see. It is a crazy spot. When we think about Paul London, we think about a spot he would do on the next show where he runs up a ladder. And we think about please the please don't die chance. But he was doing crazy things, it seems like, on a lot of these shows. And it's, it's wild that we don't remember some of these things. Because this spot, I know there's ways people can think there's ways people fall into guardrails. He took this really hard. Like I said on the last show, how Paul Lennon just seemed to have, be a guy that you could tell had no fear. This bump he took with no fear. He just took it as crazy as he could, breaks the guardrail. And then later when he does the the dive where Michael Shane fakes the Chris Marvel injury, Paul London hits his ankles really hard on the guardrail. So just the, the, the man was a madman and he obviously hated guardrails. 
you know, Buffy loved them. He hated them. The one other thing I thought was interesting was when they try and sell the Michael Shane fake ankle break, where he's re- repeating the Chris Marvel injury. Donnie and Steve get real serious. They do their kind of serious voices, like "Oh my god!" And it's funny because when Chris Marvel actually broke his ankle, Steve Carino was cracking jokes the entire time. So I thought it was pretty funny that, like, now we're supposed to believe he's being really serious. But yeah, I mean, I I guess it was an evolution of how they produced the product, but. You know, it kind of goes, I guess, to what Karina actually said, which is it's two comedy guys, and it just doesn't really work. And, you know, like we said, this is their last time to do commentary together. And I would say this is their second worst performance. I was talking to you the other day, and I said, I said, I actually thought I was, after their first show, Night of Appreciation, which I think is their dirt worst ever and one of the worst commentary performances I've, I've ever heard I thought they got a slight bit better and I probably wondered if that was just that hearing you and me talk about on the podcast was making me laugh and making me just enjoy it more but this show is their second worst and may might rival Night of Appreciation it is terrible at one point um, Donnie B well, he does this a few times during the show. He 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 sells way too hard when someone tries to be a heel. Like when he knows someone is supposed to be the heel, he sells things that aren't even that heelish as just horrible things. When, when London gets shut off the top turnbuckle, there's nothing illegal about that move. But Donnie B acts like Michael Shane just did the most evil illegal thing possible, doing a smart counter, shoving a guy off a turnbuckle before he was going to hit him with something, and. Donnie B is just trying way, way too hard here. I wish he would try that hard at researching these matches, but he doesn't. But again, as a match, good, not great. I, I felt like the big spots were memorable. I feel like it kind of meandered a bit down the stretch. Shane started putting London in submissions, which in a way is good heel dominating work, but he didn't really work them in a way that made you that engaged you it it was a good match though and unlike the xavier scoot andrews feud i actually came away from this match wanting to see them wrestle again which is the point of a feud yes although i want to see them wrestle again because i've seen their next match and i already know that i like it so oh you're cheating i wipe my mind for every one of these matches Uh but yeah afterwards we get like you said the simply luscious and michael shane thing where she gives the invite I'll just note that when Michael Shane hits Simply Luscious, that makes this Ring of Honor six for six on man-on-woman violence. So, yeah, they really, they really like to do that. It's, it's uncomfortable. But like, like I said, like I don't want to make excuses, but I think they're just trying to get that ECW thing, and ECW did that all the time too. We've gotten to the point where they've done it on every show. That it, it, it does now feel like it's just a box they're checking off. Like there's got to be a spot on the show where a woman gets beat up. It just I, has to happen. I feel completely confident that there was. Yeah, it's, it's weird, because there's always one. They always just... It, and maybe it's just that they that's the only thing they can think to do with women, but it might actually... It does feel like it's a conscious decision that we have to have one of these on every show. 
I think that, you know, they, the fan base did like it. You know, as sick as it is to say, like, I'm not saying that's a good reason to do it. You know, you retrain them, but it's, yeah, I mean, they, they knew their audience. And for more younger fans, this, this is before intergender wrestling. This was, this had a completely different connotation, you know, when, back then when wrestlers beat up valets, it, it was not just a fair fight. And Shane and Biohazard beat on London for a while. They leave. Like you said, London gets the big reaction. And on to our next match. American Dragon takes on Donovan Morgan. And this goes to a 15-minute time limit draw. So if you're wondering why this went to a time limit draw, apparently, according Dave Meltzer writes in The Observer, um, people are starting to catch on that the NOAA guys can't do jobs on U.S. indie shows except to each other. So, apparently, I guess the insinuation was, that's why Donovan Morgan did not lose here to American Dragon. I assume that's probably why Donovan Morgan would end up spending most of his time in Ring of Honor in tag matches in the future, because that's a way that you don't have to have as many of these kind of problems. The other guy can take the fall. But... A match. This was a match. I another good match. I thought not great, but good. I, I Dragon and and Morgan are on a different level in terms of from most of the guys on these shows in terms of polish, just the mechanics being smooth and looking comfortable in the ring with what they're doing. They they did some Dragon did some really good w- simple limb work to start, but he just comes at it with an intensity. And Dragon in this match, I noticed. You know, Danielson would get over the years a lot of Benoit comparisons. But this is one of those matches where I actually really saw it, where he has that same kind of Benoit-esque intensity to every move, where every move is kind of snapped off with 100% dedication. There's just that extra little bit of level of polish where I feel like other guys learn, a lot of guys on the indies learn moves till they're 90% comfortable with that, their move. And then they go, okay, I know that move. I know how to do it. I want to learn another move. And I feel what separates some guys that are real craftsmen is they just drill moves till they everything looks just so so sharp. And I really noticed that with Dragon here, and to a lesser extent with Donovan Morgan. I feel like where this match kind of falters a bit, where it goes good instead of great, is is they, they go in a couple interesting places, and they never really go there all the way. Like, Dragon does some nice arm work, I think, to Morgan at the start. It's never followed up on, never sold afterwards. Morgan, at, at one point, takes the match to the outside and starts tossing Dragon into the guardrail and stuff. And it looks like maybe we could get a more intense, kind of heelish performance from Morgan, but then it just goes back in the ring and kind of goes as a regular technical match. The match ends up being mostly kind of a colorless technical wrestling match, but the work itself, as far as ten- colorless technical wrestling matches, I thought was very enjoyable. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, you know, this is supposed to be Morgan's debut as a member of the Prophecy, but he works pretty much totally as a babyface. You know, he even does the get tries to get the crowd to start doing like the clap thing where he's like, you know, to like cheer them both on, which mm-hmm. is definitely not something that heels do, um, as far as I can tell. Um, I noticed also that uh, Dragon had a little bit of stubble, so maybe he was toying with um, his uh, with the character that he would end up becoming famous for. 
No, probably not. He probably just didn't shave. But <laughs> but I like to think of that. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny because, you know, just uh, go on with his WWE st- character. Carino actually makes fun of him for being boring here, which is, it's like, all right, Michael Cole, let's, like, we get it already. That's um, always the, the worst thing to do as an announcer, in my opinion, is sell a wrestler as boring. Yeah. And it's also disingenuous because he had fawned over Dragon in earlier matches you know, on Ring of Honor. And I know he, it's because Dragon now has an association with Rudy Boy and, you know, Korean was supposed to wrestle Dragon on the next show, but then he mentions in commentary that he's not actually because he has a zero one commitment. But he just says he has better things to do. But it just comes off as so fake and disingenuous and and not as good healing. Right. But sorry. No, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. It was. It comes off as disingenuous and forced. Um, I, I did notice that Dragon was working on Morgan's arm for like a really long time before Morgan came back at all, and then he hit sort of the backdrop driver for the comeback. So uh, that was interesting. But yeah, it was just, it was very solid work, but like you said, totally bland, and Morgan didn't really do uh, do anything to really make his character stand out. I did think Donnie B did one good thing in this match, which was, you know, Dragon was hitting him repeatedly in the back of the head, and I don't think I would have really noticed that if Donnie B hadn't pointed out that Dragon was targeting Morgan's head. It didn't really go anywhere, but I thought that was good of Donnie B to do. Um, I don't think every announcer would have pointed that out, unless, you know, maybe Gabe gave him notes before the match, but, you know, I'm not sure. But, and then also at the end, I thought maybe Dragon had um, Morgan in the cattle mutilation for a little too long before the bell rang, like maybe almost implausibly long, considering, you know, how long other guys have been in it. But otherwise, yeah, it was just it was just basic but solid. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, I should mention that's how the match ended, where the time limit expired with Dragon having Morgan in the cat mutilation, and I guess because of that finish, he was forced to put the leave the hold in maybe for a few more seconds. But I, I agree about Donnie B actually being good at a couple times on the show about pointing out work like um where someone's focusing on a body part. But he also called a, a Morgan forearm in this match a shoot forearm. So I guess every <laughs> other forearm in wrestling is fake, and yeah. that was the one real one. So thanks, Donnie, for telling us about that. To be fair to Donnie B, that is not the only time in ROH history they pulled something like that. And this one, <laughs> this one was at least probably an accident. Other times they did that on purpose. This is also a match where I think one other thing I want to give Dragon credit for, I thought he was really good at bumping here. I noticed whenever Morgan gave him a suplex or a backdrop driver, he was really giving him a jump. He was going up super easy and making all those suplexes look really good. I thought this was a really good performance for Dragon just in terms in terms of everything. Like it it was far from his best match in Ring of Honor so far, but I think if you just zeroed in on Dragon, the little things he was doing he was showing off just, again, how good he was, how complete he was in a lot of ways, just in terms of the different parts of an in-ring wrestling. Just, I was really impressed by his individual performance here. Not that Morgan was even bad, but it, w- it was a good match with a very good performance, I would say. Yeah, isn't it amazing watching this? I mean, I know it kind of goes without saying, that like with that, to realize you're watching the guy who ends up being like the most popular babyface in American pro wrestling to the mainstream in like the past decade. <laughs> it, it's... Yeah, I'd say, but the past, let's say the past eight, seven years. <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy to think that 
he would get over doing something so like I liked it, but so silly as the yes chat. Like it's yeah. it's crazy to think not only will this guy become a huge star, but he'll have this giant beard and long hair and just be known for doing this this crazy chant. Yeah, and I shouldn't say most popular babyface because that's still Cena. But let's say most beloved babyface. That, that I, think I mean, and, and he was red hot for I mean short for a short relatively short time. He main evented a WrestleMania. The whole show was built around him. So. I wouldn't undersell. He he was huge. Yeah. And so after the match of this match, Donovan Morgan and American Dragon, the they they do the usual you know tease for five more minutes. Dragon gets on the mic and talks about how in this match Morgan's proved that he's better than the prophecy. So shake his hand. Morgan teases and won't shake. And one thing I thought that they made a mistake here is. When the crowd is wanting five more minutes, they have the ref say no to five more minutes and leave. And I feel like they could have given that to Morgan because you're putting half the heat then on the ref instead of all the, the heel. Heat. All the yeah. Heat. In fact, the crowd starts chanting, kill the ref. You know, you're making – and especially it would have been – so simple because Morgan was caught in a cattle mutilation at the end of the match. So it would have been perfect for him to chicken out and say, I don't want to wrestle anymore. Yeah, and Dragon even says the ref is too much of a coward to give them five more minutes, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't get why you would do this. It's something Gabe has done in the future. Because I remember uh, two or three years ago in Evolve, Gabe had an angle where like refs ra- waved off a match or two. And they, and they had the announcers be like, oh, this was a questionable call. And I thought... This is really building to something, obviously, and it never did. So I don't, I don't know if Gabe has a secret vendetta about referees, but it, it's weird that he lets the ref take the fall here. I don't think it's ever a good idea to make your ref lose esteem in the eyes of the fans, especially when you could have used that as an opportunity for a heel. I agree, and it especially doesn't make any sense in a company like Ring of Honor where the rules are supposed to be a big deal. I I did really also appreciate the crowd really did enjoy this match even though there was a lot of technical mat work and they and that was something that the Ring of Honor brass was apparently worried about they were uh, we'll go into it in a little bit but they were worried that this crowd wouldn't like matches like that and I think their fears were proven to be completely unfounded because they more than enjoyed this I gu- I guess I agree but I'd say they weren't as hot for it as maybe some of those early Philly crowds would have been. I remember those early Philly crowds were just red hot for everything, and I did notice some quiet moments. They appreciated everything in this. You know, they certainly didn't boo or shit on or champ boring, but I don't. I don't know if I would quite say they were hot for it. If that makes sense. They never turned on it though. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and again, at the end, they wanted to see five more minutes. Right. They chanted bullshit and kill the ref when they didn't get five more minutes. So right. they definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. They they wanted to see this come to an end, but. Afterwards, we get a Hit Squad promo. Hit Squad cut a show, short promo outside about tonight's match against the Carnage crew. The camera pans out a bit, and we see they're standing in front of a bus with two broken windows, and Monster Mac points to the window and asks the Carnage crew if they're ready to make the sacrifice. So I don't know if the sacrifice is to fight a bus, but that's what he was... I don't, I don't know... Like, he was pointing to the windows like we were supposed to really, like, yeah, the hit squad are badass. They break bus windows. Yeah. Well, fighting a bus would be quite a sacrifice. Buses are hard to beat. Can't beat a bus. That's my motto. Uh, 
Monster Mac is a... Sorry. No, no, you go on. I was done. Monster Mac is a weird promo. Like, his voice just doesn't match his tough persona. Like, he just has a very, like, kind of lighthearted, silly voice. And he just seems like he's joking around when he's supposed to be tough. Yeah, Monster Mac comes off as a very... Nice guy. Yeah, he comes off as jovial and gregarious. And I think he's even done... I think he might have done a podcast with Rob Naylor a long time ago. Like, he's a big Japanese wrestling fan, I think. He comes off as a nice guy, which is... I I agree, it kind of works against the Hit Squad vibe, where I think that natural likability comes through with him. He doesn't seem as intimidating when he's he's also exuding kind of just being a friendly, lovable, lighthearted guy. It's like he's the Shockmaster, but then he's Uncle Fred. (laughs) Uncle Fred in my heart. Shockmaster on your program. Uh-huh. We, uh, uh, shit, my notes. So we get a short promo with the Carnage crew in Philly's Murphy Rec Center. So I assume this was taped for the, the last show. Yeah, at the end of the last show. Yeah, at the end of the last show, at the end of Crowning of Champions. I assume they taped it for this and then had to cut it for time because there was a lot of cuts on that show. It's them attacking the ring crew boys like they usually do before they tell the hit squad that the ring crew kids represent the hit squad. Ooh. And yeah, that's not much to this either. Nope. But and Boston oh, massacre match. Then we get the Boston massacre tag team match, the hit squad taking on the carnage crew. The hit squad beat the carnage crew in 11 minutes, six seconds when mafia pins Loke after a burning hammer. Matt, uh, it's safe to say the Boston Massacre match turned out to be a lot like a bunkhouse brawl. It was a lot like a bunkhouse brawl, and you're going to be very surprised by this, what I'm about to say about this. Because I remember, you know, I heard a lot about the bunkhouse brawl. I hadn't seen it in years, and I maybe didn't think it was as great as some people said. This match I heard pretty much nothing about, and Melter said it didn't really get over. But I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was, you know, maybe not as good as the bunkhouse brawl, but not noticeably worse you know there's a little bit more um setup because they did the whole contrived thing where they went they walked to the back and they brought out these barbed wire boards about two-thirds of the way through the match and they did all the teases of stuff going into them but i thought it had the same amount of intensity with the barbed wire you know the hit squad did some some cool moves i enjoy the carnage crew in general i think they do a good job and you know as far as these like bloody matches they're not my thing but I thought they did a pretty good job with it. There wasn't too much contrived setup in it uh, compared to some other matches that I've seen, you know, maybe from ECW. Um, you know, they they did some cool moves onto the boards. I thought the crowd went nuts at the big final, like, spear of DeVito through the board. Um, and then they just they do the burning hammer from Moff onto Loke at the end. Uh, I think maybe it overstayed its welcome, but I thought it was pretty good, which is better than I thought I would say. We're going to have one of our early big disagreements here because I thought this was below average and significantly worse than the bunkhouse brawl. Yeah, I was, I, I was looking because I expected it, you know. I was looking for ways that it was worse. And, you know, it was maybe it was a little longer and not as fast-paced. But otherwise, I thought it was similar. I, I thought the bunkhouse brawl went at a good clip. And other than the first couple minutes, which was just of the bunkhouse brawl, which was just them grinding on each other in corners and cutting each other, which was kind of boring. I felt that moved at a good clip. 
I thought that was intense. Maybe like we discussed on the last episode, maybe too intense for how short the feud had been. I, I felt there was always something new. There was always a spot. They were always moving to the next big spot, to the next we- different weapon, to to all that. I felt this match was much closer to the kind of hardcore match I've seen a lot of, which is it's a little bit slower and more plodding. And it seems like so much of the match is just a vehicle for the first two rows and the handheld cameras to get good shots of guys bleeding. There's a lot of ju- uh, there's a lot in this match of big close-ups to guys bleeding as a guy just grinds on them and growls. And everything builds to the big two spots at the end where they bring out barbed wire boards, the dastardly Boston barbed wire boards, and do spots into them, and then the burning ha- hammer happens. But... I'll make another one of my famous food food analogies where I feel like this was this match was like a pizza where the crust is awful and you could tell a pizza place just made the crust as a vehicle to get cheese and toppings to your mouth. I felt like this match was just there to get the shots of blood and the barbed wire spots at the end. I mean, they did other chair, they did other spots that were still one hard chair shot. They brought out the cowbell again. I just felt this was a couple levels below the bunkhouse brawl. It just didn't engage me nearly as much. And I I just thought it was slower and plotted more and was more just about look at these guys bleed. Even though the last last time the match had all four guys bleed. One other thing I did notice about this match, though, I don't know about you, Matt, but this was the first show I noticed that Mafia was starting to lose weight. I don't maybe maybe I'm just it's in my head or something, but but obviously Mafia would lose a lot of weight, and this is the first show where when he came out, I thought to myself, is he losing weight? Is this the start of it? Because he did look, I think, noticeably skinnier than Mac than Mac than he had before. Oh, I mean, I don't notice things like that. I don't I don't body shame like you do. So I, uh, I I'm, a, I'm judgmental. I um I'm just kidding, but I um I, so yeah I don't you know I don't know I just it just didn't seem that uh, that different. I would say you know I know we don't really do star ratings, but like the bunkhouse brawl I would have said was like a three and a quarter maybe three star match for me, and this was maybe like two and three quarter stars. So I'd say similar in quality, maybe if if not quite as good. See, I would have done like three and a quarter, three and a half, maybe even probably three and a quarter for like you for the bunkhouse brawl. I probably would have done two or one and three quarters for this i I was just not a fan of this it it wasn't i I, i've seen worse of these kind of matches but yeah not and and dave said the crowd was not into this match i think they were into the big spots i think they maybe weren't as into just the minute by minute of the match but it's not like they turned on this and I think whenever they did something huge, the crowd gave the appropriate reaction. But I will say if Ring of Honor thought they needed this kind of match because of the history of this area, they did not react to this like a crowd that was just dying to see gore and stuff. It didn't feel like they absolutely were just desperately waiting for this. Right, and I would agree with that. And I'd say it's a while before ROH really starts to do really good like bloody brawls. I, I, you know, they get to a point eventually where they have a lot of good ones, but at this point, they're mostly just indie-rific kind of stuff. And it's obvious now with the second match of this type that a lot of guys on Ring of Honor kind of get pigeonholed into their niche, their thing that they can do for the show, and just like how the Whipwreck students 
quickly got put into the role of you do the crazy spot fests that are just without rhyme or reason to get the crowd jumping. Carnage Crew have quickly been slotted in as you do the big gross brawls and the gimmicks and the weapons and add that element to the shows. Yep, and uh, it, that's mostly true for a while. Mm-hmm. So next we have a very short little match. Biohazard comes out with Michael Shane, and he takes on Don Juan in another TWA students match. Biohazard wins in 2 minutes, 19 seconds by pinfall after what looked kind of like a halfway point between a back suplex and a backdrop driver. Third squash of the night. Third squash of the night, 2 minutes. This felt completely pointless. I know Biohazard and Don Juan probably just came along with with Paul London and Rudy Boy and whoever, but you don't get you get, you don't get to show anything when you get two minutes. It, it 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 doesn't add any more value to the show. It doesn't give these guys a chance to show the promoters if they're good enough to be booked on future shows. It doesn't put anybody over. Um, Donnie B once again embarrasses himself when he says that Don Juan's really showing something in the match after Don Juan hits a DDT, which might have been the only offensive move Don Juan had in the match, one of maybe one or two. So again, in these short matches, Donnie B always loves to say that the guy losing, oh, he's doing really good. He proves something when it's obvious he never does. Um, I don't I don't know why this match was on the show. This Some of the things on the show felt like the buffet theory of wrestling where you're you're not trying to impress with quality. You're just not trying to impress with quantity. Like, look at how m- many matches we're giving you. Look at how many segments. Look how many different wrestlers are booked on this show for you. On all in all told, it ends up being fourteen matches, fourteen yeah. official matches, which is insane for an for an indie show like this, especially when there are a few pretty long ones packed in there. I was I, I was thinking about this, like, what is this WrestleMania five where they think they they have to do this many matches? Like, it's some super card. Like, it's literally. You know, it's you know, it's an, the fir- oh, first ROH show in Boston, but you know, you know what people are coming for. You know, they're coming for the, the the couple of big, you know, you know, like the top indie stars, and so you have all these other things. It just makes it feel like another indie show. Uh, yeah, this was nothing, and I felt bad for the guys. You know, at least they got a payday, I guess, but I don't think it ultimately did anything for them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not offensive, but just why did it need to be here? And exactly. We get another one of those matches immediately following it. So I don't know if he put these two together as kind of a cool down or something. But we get the New England Championship Wrestling Special Attraction match where Alex Arion defeats Maverick Wild via pinfall in 5 minutes 50 seconds with a roll-up. These two guys were from Sheldon Goldberg's NECW promotion. So they kind of get a little bit of a spotlight match here, but still a very a relatively short match. I... I don't know if Sheldon Goldberg helped them get a building in New England. You know, I don't know if this was a favor or something, but another match where I don't know why they put this on. Right, the guys was, did really have a chance to, like, show anything anyway. It, it, it was a perfectly average match. Maverick Wild had done a bit of work in uh, WCW dark matches and stuff in the 90s, but he gets to show a little tiny bit of healness, and he also does this weird move where he... A guy's lot where Arion's lying in the corner, lying down near the corner of the, uh, near the turnbuckles. Arion runs, jumps over him, 
hits the turnbuckles with his chest and falls backwards into a senton on the guy. I thought that was at least memorable, but kind of a weird spot. But completely average. Nothing bad about this match. Nothing, nothing memorable. Arion gets the win, and I thought Wild looked a little bit more interesting of the two, and he's the one that unfortunately never gets asked back. Arion would be the guy that gets future bookings off of this. Yeah, I I actually liked Wild's vibe. He kind of he kind of gave me a like a little bit of a Steve Austin vibe. The way he carried himself, he's obviously a lot smaller. But the way he moved, the way he carried himself, the way he did heel stuff and mannerisms, I, I actually, you know, it showed me some potential there. But like you said, you never really see him again. But yeah, this match just felt like it's like they, they wrestled a hundred times and this is their most basic version of their routine. And it just felt like a routine in a not a good way. Yeah. I, I, and I feel for these guys getting these weird little tryout matches like this that don't have much time. But... It felt, it, felt, it felt very WWE. It's like where they just like give these guys like a basic raw match where you can't do anything, and it's like, well, that sort of defeats the point of ROH. But maybe like these keen, keen-eyed promoters can really see something from these guys in these super short matches. <laughs> I don't really buy it. It, it. Some of these matches, it just feels like I think something that happens in indies a lot, or at least more back then, where you're not even really thinking about the experience for fans. You're just trying to make people happy, like. Oh, Biohazard and Don Juan came along with you? Yeah, we can throw them on the show. We'll give you a couple minutes. You know, oh, Sheldon, you know, you want to put a couple of your guys on the show? Maybe you helped us out a little bit? Yeah, we can put them on for five minutes. And you're not really thinking about how all these tiny segments and little matches are going to come off as how they're going to affect the whole of the show. And I know that's something that indie promoters have struggled with sometimes where you start a promotion and everyone's like, come on, man. You know, we've been friends for a while. Can't you give me something? And that's probably a reason why in these early shows we get so many matches, so many segments, so many unnecessary people that accompany other people to the ring. There's probably some of that to it, I think. Yeah, and you know what? You probably can't blame them for that. It's probably just some sort of part of the uh, the price of doing biz, the cost of doing business, um, at literally at the time. And you know maybe that's okay. Uh, but they probably could have booked it differently. I'm guessing these two matches came right after an intermission or something, and mm-hmm. that's how that's why they booked them there. Because on the DVD, it's just like randomly, like they just they have all these like you know competitive matches. Then they had just have two squash matches with nobodies, totally randomly, and it just doesn't doesn't feel right. But mm-hmm. uh, it almost felt like a diva match segment from years ago, where before the final few matches, here's you know here's a three minutes of brawn panties or something. But this yeah. was just oh, they still do minutes. stuff like that in WWE. But ROH wasn't really the cool down match sort of promotion. Yeah, so that's why it felt weird. And we are into the final three matches though, and the next one is the Natural Born Sinners, Boogaloo and Homicide taking on James Maritato and Tony, Ma- Tony Mamaluke, the former FBI. James Maritato would not want to be called that now. And the Sinners win in 12 minutes, 31 seconds, when Homicide pins Mamaluke after the cop killer. Um, Matt, what do you think? What did you think about this? Um, I kind of liked it. I, I thought the announcers were a little bit less annoying. You know, it wasn't a dynamic match. But, you know, it was the first time that both of these teams really got to show off any sort of anything, you know, like, and actually have a real tag team match. You know, they played up Boogaloo's um, amateur credentials, and they, they sort of do a lot of that stuff. And, you know, they have a little storyline of um, Mama Luke, you know, preening and gloating, and Maritado wants him to just 
be straightforward and and serious. Um, at one point, uh, Donnie B is lamenting uh, uh, Maritato's time in ROH so far, saying that he hasn't his career is not really going up or down. It's showing a lot of quote stagnicity. <laughs> so, which is a one of my favorites so far. Um, uh, the, it, but I say it's it's solid, you know, solid work. I thought that Homicide, he got worked over for a while and he kind of messed up the hot tag in the sense that instead of tagging Boogaloo in a dramatic way, he just kind of hits two leisurely suplexes and then tags Boogaloo. But Boogaloo does a good job when he tags in. Um, and then Homicide's suddenly going for covers already, So, but I didn't see a tag, so they didn't really care about that. Um, do a suplex into a guillotine choke by Mama Luke, but Boogaloo breaks it up with a kick. Um, Mama Luke escapes the cop killer, but Homicide goes for it again and hits it for the win. I didn't think there was really a lot of drama or heat, but I thought it was good. You know, I'd say of all the tag teams in ROH, um, Natural Born Sinners definitely look like they're probably the best at the moment, but correct me if I'm wrong, but this is Boogaloo's last match in ROH, isn't it? No, it is. Um, does he work the next show? I'm not sure, because I, I know... He's booked on Glory by Honor, but we'll get into he does not show up to Glory by Honor. So if he doesn't work the next show, then that this will be it. Hmm. For some reason, I thought it was his last show, but p- perhaps I'm wrong. I'm going to look that I'm up not, right I'm, now. I'm, I'm going to look sure. that up right now. Okay. Just I'll to. Uh, I was going to look it up, but I'll let you. So well, I, I you. thought this was a low end of average match. I thought th- they take it to the mat early, Boogaloo and Mamaluke, and. I was excited for that because Mamluk loves going to the mat, and Boogaloo is an accomplished mat wrestler as well. Yeah, Boogaloo is not on the next show, so nor is Homicide. Yeah. Okay, so this, so this is this. You're right. This is Boogaloo's last match in Ring of Honor, then, and this is the last Natural Born Sinners tag too. Then, but I thought when I saw Boogaloo and Mamluk take it to the mat, I didn't think it was that good because there's two ways mat work can be interesting to me. It can be really crazy moves and quick and flashy with lots of counters, or it can be very slow, but you really work the holds and do good facial expressions and good selling and try and make a story out of it. And this was neither. This was single leg takedowns and holding on to a limb and slow, but not really engaging or interesting. And I think it's telling that when they both tag out and Maritato and Homicide come in, they do something that's a little more faster and flashy and pro wrestling in terms of reversals. And I just found it infinitely more interesting than what they had done, even though on paper, I was looking forward to their mat work. The match itself, again, low end of average to me, I felt like that this was just, there wasn't anything that really defined the match. It was them passing time. I think homicide is face in peril is a bad choice not just for the reasons you mentioned where he kind of screwed up the hot tag, but the natural born sinners were built on being the scary team and homicide. Isn't the guy I really feel sympathy for. He comes off as, you know, the scary badass. So seeing him being the face in peril out of these four guys didn't really, didn't really work for me. And maybe that's an unfair thing. That's me putting my own views into it, but also mama Luke and Maritato, they worked a couple munic- miscommunication spots but one of them was even just a missed chop that might have hit Maritato. I mean, Mama Luke. And it was, that might have even been on accident. I felt like they could have, li- 
leaned a bit more into those kind of spots because that would have at least given this match some kind of story. I guess it wasn't a bad match, but to me more disappointing because there's a lot of talent in this match. They got a good amount of time, and it just turned out to be adequate. Well, you're definitely a tougher grader than I am, I would say, across the board. Um, Well, on some things, because we might be coming to the match where I... I, I'm gonna gush pretty hard, Matt. All right. Well, the, 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 in this one, I, I guess I, I didn't. I didn't feel it was disappointing because I thought compared to everything else they were in, you know, you know, the obviously the Natural Born Sinners had the uh, the bunkhouse brawl, but none of these guys had had a chance to actually show what they could do wrestling wise. And I thought they actually the fact they were able to have a match, um, you know, for the really the first time in ROH, like just like an actual wrestling match, uh, made it stand out to me a little bit more than I guess it did to you. Um, so I thought it was it was it was pretty decent, um, but but you know whatever is homicide going to do now that Boogaloo is gone? I feel I'm pretty worried about him. I'm pretty worried about what's going to happen to him. Yeah, his career's over now. I yeah. mean Boogaloo was propping him up, uh-huh. but I will give credit. This is the kind of match that feels like it would have gotten six minutes on an earlier show, and I did I do give them credit. They gave it twelve and a half here, so they gave them every opportunity you know to really have a good length match. Um, I also felt like maybe Maritato could have been in the match a bit more because he was in some of my favorite parts. Although I will say Mamaluke had my two favorite spots. He had a really nice big forearm off the top, and he had a stretch muffler Boston Crab combo kind of, which I thought looked good. That, in fact, low-key does later. Maybe he stole it. No, not really. But but next, we're going to get to the match where I'll be shocked if you like this as much as me, although I'm sure you probably enjoyed it. But we get... Finally, the Battle of the Briscoes, Mark Briscoe's debut in Ring of Honor, in in the ring. Mark Briscoe beats Jay Briscoe in 16 minutes, 53 seconds, via pinfall after he hits the cutthroat driver, which is kind of a Death Valley driver, I mean a burning hammer with the arm, well, your opponent's arms draped over his own neck. This, This was a match when we started doing this. I was really looking forward to revisiting, but in some ways a little bit dreading because I hadn't seen this match in years and I remembered absolutely loving this match and revisiting it. I still really love this match. I I think this is an amazing match. Mark Briscoe is 17 years old when, when this match is being wrestled. He's 17. He, the reason why this match is happening in Massachusetts is because he was not allowed to wrestle in Philly. Although CZW, did let him wrestle underage for a while before they got caught. So this is this is why this is Mark's first match in Ring of Honor. And you know Jay's only eighteen. They're they're combined thirty five. And this match had more story and more subtlety and nuance to it than I would say almost every other match in Ring of Honor so far. And it's from the two youngest guys. And one of the thing where that all comes in is not only do they work a limb in this match, but I feel a lot of times in wrestling these days, wrestlers work a limb or sell a limb, and it feels like a complete obligation. Like you can practically hear them, you can practically hear them think in their head, okay, I gotta sell this so guys on Twitter don't yell at me. I see so many wrestlers now, they they sell a limb, and all that means is they do every move they were going to do anyway. And they briefly grab their leg after every move. And there's no, and so many matches where a guy just picks a limb and just works on it just to say they worked a limb. And on this match, everything flows in the sense of Jade gets busted open a few minutes into this match. 
And Mark, he works to the cut, which I love. He 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 starts punching the cut. He um. Are, hello, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay, sorry, my thing just freaked out a second. But um, he start he works to the cut. He he starts punching the the cut a, a lot. He keeps he he doesn't let off of it. So then, what does Jade do? He um. When he gets a chance, he stomps on Mark's hand, punching hands, and then he twists it in a knuckle lock, and then he steps on it again. So Mark throws one more punch, but now it's hurt. So what does he do? He starts dropping knees on Jay's head on the cut. So what does Jay do? He reacts to that. He starts going after the knee. And only then do you get the more typical story of Mark selling the knee. I love just how everything there, everything, every move was a reaction to something else. And then... At this point, Mark does a really good job of selling the knee. I love this moment where Jay's on the outside, and Mark goes to do a springboard dive to the outside. He jumps on the ropes and then hops immediately back down because his knee is hurt. And I've never seen this before, and I know reading The Observer, Meltzer was really impressed with this too. The crowd applauds that Mark can't do the move and is selling his leg. Like, they give him a clapping ovation for selling and not being able to do this move. And then Mark... He adjusts. Again, he adjusts. He doesn't do a springboard, but he just hurls himself over the rope so he doesn't have to really jump with his leg. And it's given Jay enough time to to move out of the way, and Mark lands right on his knee. And even a little bit later, where Mark does do a couple flying moves, one of them, he does a, when he does do the springboard, he grabs his knee and screams in pain as he is doing the springboard, like as he's jumping off the rope, which I thought was just so cool. And so to me, that's one of the reasons I love this match. There's so much, there's such a good story and so much detail work. But another reason I love the match is they still give you all the big high spots, the fast pace. That's all in there too. It's not just like a quiet, slow moving, methodical match. It's, they give you the best of everything and they get plenty of big spots at the end. Jay hits this big, crazy sit out tombstone you know jay bleeds they still give you to me they gave you everything here and i'll there's some flaws i can get to maybe after i let you talk a little bit but i still can't i defy people to find a match this good from two guys that are combined 35 years old yeah well that i definitely agree with that you know for their age this was amazing you know and i haven't seen a lot of their other early stuff you know pre-roh um, they seem so much more confident against each other than Jay seemed against anyone else, um, which is interesting to note. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Jay's a kid. And um, it's worth noting they had wrestled each other a few times, at least documented when I did my research. They had wrestled in CZW, and in fact, earlier this month, they had wrestled in NECW to a draw, I think. Yeah, they, so, had, they had some famous matches, Best of the Best um, yeah, the from first CZW. Best of the best. So they did have lots of experience with each other. Yeah, so that makes sense why they were so confident with each other. And I'm sure all the matches, I'm sure that they had at home. You know, I don't even mean like actual fights. I mean, I'm sure they practiced their matches yeah. at home. Because I'm pretty sure they still live together at this point with their parents. Um, mm-hmm. So so it makes sense. That said, um, you know, I thought it was really good. You know, great, in fact. But I thought that Mark totally outshined Jay here. You know, there were, there were times when Jay seemed a little tentative. Like I said, he was a lot more confident. And, you know, there was, there was a moment where I think Mark hit a tombstone and Jay pretty much no-sold it. Which, but Mark's selling was so on point and his, his heel mannerisms and his, his facial expressions. He was, he was just 
such a standout here, you know, between the hand stuff. You know, Jay did cool stuff where he would like, you know, when he started targeting Mark's hand, you know, he would do little things. Like he was walking to the corner and he just made sure to step on Mark's hand. But Mark was so, you know, good about selling it. And most guys wouldn't have been. And like you said, all the stuff with the leg, you know, jumping up onto the... um, onto the top rope on one leg, miss, you know, not being able to hit that, hit that, uh, that springboard because of the leg. Um, the, the, the real only, the only thing that I could really criticize it is that big no-sell late in the match by Jay, and it wasn't like an intentional no-sell. It was sort of like he just forgot to sell it and went right to his moves, which is the sort of no-selling that bothers me. Um, but you can't fault them that much for that, especially considering their age. I thought this was awesome considering that they were, um, you know, their experience level and everything. And they, they really did a good job of structuring the match. You know, it felt like, you know, they had an advantage in the sense that they're, you know, they they do live together and they do, you know, get to talk this through all the time. But the thing that surprised me the most was how much more impressive Mark was than Jay at this point. Uh, I would agree that Mark was the standout in this match. I thought Jay did his part, but Jay was also pretty generous in this match. He gave Mark, yeah. I would say, the lion's share of the match. And But in terms of carrying, carrying the uh, the personality and the selling, I mean, uh, yeah, Mark completely carried all those elements of the match and that was those were the major parts of the match. Like he's the one doing the emoting. There's a great moment where the part where Jay gets busted open Mark throws Jay into the barricade, and then he throws him into a ring post and the ring apron and back into the barricade and back into another ring post. And while Jay's blading, Mark turns to the crowd and he he goes, I told y'all he wasn't shit. And I just thought even stuff like that, where he's a 17-year-old, and so often young indie guys or young wrestlers in general, they don't emote at all because they're so new to wrestling. It's all they can do just to keep the moves in their head. The fact that there's a couple times in this match where as a 17-year-old, at another point, he hops on the turnbuckle after a sequence and kind of just dusts his hands off or whatever. Like, he's he's emoting, he's healing. He is not the crazy, super charismatic Mark Briscoe we'd come to know, but He's doing a fair bit for a 17-year-old while also carrying so much else in this match. And I think Mark Briscoe is one of the most underrated wrestlers of his generation. I think I prefer him in a lot of ways to Jay. And this is, this is one of his great performances. Even years later, this is an individual performance, I think, that's, that ranks among his best. In ter- again, for all those little things. But you still get the big moves. If I had to nitpick a couple tiny flaws, they do a few, the opening two or three minutes, they do a bunch of really good quick counters and reversal, reversals, and it, they look really cool, but they also look very choreographed, like these are all the ideas we've had from a bunch of matches. You know, it's almost too good. Like another one, like like the like a much better version of the Arion um, Wild match, and that like this is their routine. Like they know what they do, and they just do it. You know, blindfolded, and then once they get past that, you know, their basic shtick, they get into the really good stuff. Yeah, and then it starts feeling a bit more organic. But even I can finish those few minutes because you can kind of sell that as well. They're brothers. They are going to have sequences where they know everything the other guy's going to do and, and can reverse it, and everything works so just weaves in and out of each other so quick, so well. The other thing I would say is, like you said, there are a few times in the end where 
the match borders on guys popping up from big moves a little too quick to go back on offense. And maybe they almost do a little too much just in the sense of because Jay's on defense for so much, he takes quite a lot in this match and keeps surviving it. But they did save Mark's finisher for the end. And and no kick out of the Jay driller, but I promise it does happen a lot. We'll get to it eventually. Happen. I'm always watching for it now going, can like Matt add this to the list? I have, I have a few matches in mind that we'll get to in a few months that it definitely happens in. But they, they did protect the Jay Driller here where Jay goes for it, but he's never able to hit it. So they yes. save that yes. for a future. But I, I just think this is a great match, and I can't believe that this guy is 17. And I remember um, Dave was really impressed with these guys too from this match because when he got the tape, he said... Mark and Jay Briscoe showed just how much those two have improved in the last six months. And if they don't physically burn out, they're going to be players. So even Dave was just really impressed with this match. Although, and, I, although I feel like that's almost underselling. Like they've improved in the last six months and they're going to be players. I would watch this match and say these two are players, like now. I mean, they are already at the top of the card and blowing away everyone else below them. Now, and, it's, it is interesting, though, to like contrast it with everything else they've allowed Jay to do so far in terms of quality. You know, this was like not only better than anything Jay has done so far, but like it's like you might as well be a different human being, the degree of how much better it was. And he's also playing a completely different role, you know. He, he's allowing himself to be the face in peril here. Well, it's not a tag match, but he's in that same, you know, so many... Every other one of his matches has basically been 50-50 hit moves trying to impress the crowd. And here, it, Mark's carrying all, I would say, a lot of the detail work and the story. But Jay's putting Mark in a position where he gets to shine and do all of that. And obviously, I mean, you can see why Jay would be generous knowing that his brother isn't going to wrestle much for Ring of Honor until he turns 18. He'll get to wrestle again when they return to Massachusetts. So... You can, I can see Jay going, you know, I want to make sure my brother really gets over here for the first time. And since I get to work here all the time, I should make sure they built a match where Mark looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, even that thought process is very mature for their age. Mm-hmm. So, great match. Great, in my opinion. And they wrestle, and it, they wrestle each other a few other times over the years, through the years, uh, in ROH. And, um... This is, to me, this is still, I think, the best one of their matches that they had together in ROH, like against each other. I think I, I remember a couple in particular, one that they had in 2007, that I don't think matches this one in terms of the whole no. package. And they also wrestle again at the first anniversary show. So Yes, that's th- There's at least, yeah. And I think in a lot of ways the Briscoes improved their charisma, you know, they, they bulked up, became even better athletes, stuff like that. But in terms of selling and storytelling, I think they might've actually lost a little bit over the years. I think they kind of focused a bit more on the basics, especially Mark at, at this early point in their careers. And I just, I really, really liked the, the, the little details in this match are what made me fall in love with it. Even though, again, you get big moves, even Jay was always good in his matches, good for at least a couple big crazy moves that you don't often see. This one, not only did he do the big sit-out tombstone, he did a Death Valley driver, but he held onto the leg and turned it immediately into a cradle. It was almost like a cradle Death Valley driver. I thought that looked excellent, too. And Jay's constantly in these early shows pulling out, like, 
it seems like almost every show he's pulling out some really cool move and then he just doesn't do it again. It's 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 really interesting. He pulls out the muscle buster on the first show. He, another one of the shows he does that leg capture stunner. It seems like every show he's just picking out one thing to try and then that's it. He puts it back on the shelf like I don't need to do that again. I, and it makes the matches fun. Youthful experimentation. We all did it. <laughs> he experimented with stunners in high school. Mm-hmm. Actually did. Um, so yeah, great, great match. Um, go out of your way to see it. I really, really enjoy it. Still, it holds up incredibly well because of the little detail stuff. Afterwards, a security guard takes, um, well, first Mark shakes, uh, Jay's just beaten dead and Mark shakes his hand as he's lying on the mat. Security guard has to carry a beaten Jay to the back and, the security guard just like slumps a dead looking Jay against a door and then leaves him there. I felt like he could have attended to him a bit better. He's a security guard. He's not a medic. Give him a break. <laughs> um, Mark walks up to him and through the curtain and taunts him saying, you know, he's 1-0 and now because he used to taunt Jay going, you're 0-1 and 0-2 and all that stuff. So now he's going, I'm 1-0. and and So this feud must continue. And that's all that leaves us now for matches is the main event, which is Loki's first and only successful title defense of the ring of honor title. And he defeats AJ styles in a rematch of their night of appreciation bout. He beats him in 1949 via pinfall, pinfall, not P fall with a key crusher. <laughs> Boy, I'm That's trying to picture, I'm trying to picture what that would be. <laughs> He's not R Kelly, but Matt, since I took the last match and just gushed over it to start, uh, what did you think? I'm curious to see how much did you enjoy this match. Um, I liked it a lot. I, um, you know, I thought this was a um, an example of the crowd burnout in the sense that I thought the crowd was into this match, but I was just imagining how into it they would have been if it had taken place maybe like 45 minutes earlier. Um, you know, with with fewer matches on the card, but you know, some of the stuff they did at the beginning. Like, the submission reversal stuff and, like, low-key, like, where he was, like, lifting Styles off the ground, like, with his legs and all kinds of crazy stuff. I felt like that was, like, that didn't feel dated at all. Like, it seemed like that could have happened now. I, 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 and, and it would have, and it would have still seemed new and fresh. So, in that sense, these guys were pretty amazing at the time. In terms of the athleticism, the stuff they would do on the mat, I, I do think that, that doesn't seem too old-fashioned. By the end of the match, you know, with the big moves and stuff, I thought maybe they're, like, you know, we've, we've gone a little bit further since then, but I thought it was great. Yeah, I thought they slowed it down from their first match, and they told more of a story. Um, you, had, uh, you had AJ... Um, well, first of all, you had them start doing the thing where they traded thigh kicks um, on the, uh, on the uh, you know, in the middle of the ring, and then Loki ended it with a kick to the head, and then... Um, AJ dodges a kick and hits a hard kick to Loki's head while Key is um, on the mat. Um, you know, a lot of the big kick stuff. Styles goes for his Frankensteiner from the ground, you know, like the kip-up Frankensteiner, and Key blocks it and kicks him in the back. I thought that was a really cool spot because I haven't seen too many matches where someone blocks that. Um, then uh, Styles hits it again a minute later, and this time he actually hits it. Then he hits a big spinning lariat. Um, he goes for a dive onto Loki, but Loki kind of takes him out with a kick while he's on the way through the ropes, which is cool. Um, 
Then Loki comes back with the Kawada kicks. Styles blocks a jumping springboard kick and hits a suplex and a face drop for two. Um, key blocked the Styles clash and he, he hits kind of a um, like a Rana driver almost, like the sort of thing that Matt Seidel used to do. Uh, he gets uh, he gets two on that. Um, key then he does the Dragon Sleeper in the Tree of Woe. And at this point, it felt like they were building to the finish, but actually the finish didn't come for like another like seven or eight minutes. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, uh, AJ hits his uh, DDT from over the shoulder, that thing that he did in the first match, which he hasn't really done in years, but that's a pretty crazy move. I actually don't like that he does that in the middle of a match because that always feels like a devastating finish, and he never wins with it. Um, but he hit, but this time it's a delayed cover, so he gets the two count after that. Uh, he misses, misses the spiral tap, and he kind of came back with the, with the dragon sleeper, but Styles sort of fell into the ropes. Um... I almost felt like this is like the match was peaking here, and they maybe should have gone to the finish sooner, but it slows down a bit. Uh, they have uh, Styles hit a jumping forearm while Key is in the Tree of Woe, which is which was pretty cool. That gets two. Um, they trade chops on their knees, um, and Key ends it with a kick to the head, so there's a lot of those. Uh, Key hits a brain buster for two. Phoenix splash into Styles' knees. Uh, then AJ hits a brain buster. Styles reverses... Um, reverses the key crusher into a small package for two. Um, then a key goes for the Kawada kicks, but Styles comes back with a flurry of punches, which I thought was a really good spot. And he hits like a key hits sort of a power bomb and a jackknife pin combination for two. Uh, key blocks the dragon sleeper, but and then he reverses um oh well, AJ blocks the dragon sleeper, but key eventually reverses into a key crusher um and he gets he gets the pin. I thought it was um a lot more dramatic than their first match. Um, but again, the crowd was a little bit exhausted, and I thought maybe it peaked a little too early, um, and they could have gone to the finish, you know, in a different sequence, but I liked the drama, the execution was good, and like I said, a lot of it felt like it was still state-of-the-art, which is impressive, considering that it's literally 15 years later. I definitely, did you enjoy this better than their Night of Appreciation match? Oh yeah, a lot more. Yeah, me too. I, going into this match... I was wondering, you know, is, is this going to be better? Because I think we both agreed about that match, the Night of Appreciation one, that it was enjoyable, but it was mostly just throwing out big moves and not much else. Yeah, this definitely I, was more than that by a lot. I, yeah, I felt like this one actually had an identity to it. Now, unfortunately for AJ Styles, I think that identity was low-key beating the living shit out of him. But I, I, um, what, I what I really like... I liked in the first match, and they made the whole match more about this, was a lot of people, when Loki hits people hard, they just kind of accept that, and they're like, okay, I'm going to let Loki do his thing, and then I'll do my stuff. Where it seems like whenever Loki attacked AJ, it would always spur AJ on to fire back just as hard and really bring out a different side of him, or a side that maybe he doesn't do all the time. And a lot of this match was about this. I noticed, like... Um, Loki busts AJ open in the nose, I think, or the bridge of the nose, maybe hard way. But later on, later we'll see a backstage promo for Loki, and when the camera zooms in on his face, Loki is all marked up with little bruises around the eye and nose. So AJ gave as good as he got here, and this was just a super. I found very stiff match. It looked like 
sometimes with low key, you don't know how much looks stiff and how much is really stiff. This looked, some of the stuff looked like he was hitting the absolute hell out of this guy. And again, AJ would, would get intense and fire right back. I felt like they let, they let things breathe in this match more than the other one. I felt you could feel their exhaustion. It felt like they were having a war here where the other match was just more of an exhibition. I felt exhausted with these guys near the end. Maybe again, that's because they did a lot, but I, I, I think the stiffness, it, it just felt brutal. And I felt also like they smartly, these are two guys that can do a lot of stuff and they're both very agile and can fly a lot. And there was a bit of flying, but I felt like they kind of pared down their offense more to the strikes. And they, they worked a world title match style. Yeah, I, I, that's a great, great way to put it. That's something I was thinking of, kind of. It felt like a big main event. Like, it felt like they worked a main event rather than just a match that could have been anywhere on the show. And they, they did maybe a little less flying. Like, again, this match had more of an identity. It was about... It was about AJ Styles was going to play more of Low-Key's game, and Low-Key was just a bit better at him. You know, AJ Styles can play that game pretty well, but Low-Key is Low-Key. And the bat work at the start, I thought, was good for what it was, but I kind of thought it was in some ways the worst part of the match in the sense of even though it holds up in terms of it's not outdated, it, it felt like the kind of arbitrary we need a few minutes of bat work to pat it. We're going to pat out the match with this, and it doesn't really play into the rest of the match. Well, let me make let me make my argument for that. Don't you, like, in actual real life, like, don't you need a few minutes of arbitrary mat work? Like, if you're just starting a match, like, doesn't it make sense for two guys to just kind of, like, try to wrestle before they actually get into, like, what they do best? It, it does, but um, I think sometimes the advantage of wrestling is you don't have to, like... I saw recently Kenny Omega talked about selling and saying that we don't need as specific, as much specific selling as some fans seem to think because in real sports, a lot of times our guys are really hurting and they don't show it. But in wrestling, I feel like the advantage is because it's fake, you can make real more engaging, obvious stories and not have to do everything realistic. So while it is realistic that guys would need to kind of, grapple for a few minutes before they really open up and someone finds and before the match kind of takes shape where oh i see this is going to be my strategy i feel like because wrestling is a work the advantage is you don't have to do that like everything can have more of an overt meaning and be a bit more showy and, and flow into each other but the bat work on its own was good for what it was but that, that's kind of just a pet peeve i have in wrestling in general it's kind of my philosophy on things, but I thought this match was great. So it didn't, I thought this show ends with two great matches. So it's not like it really hurt my overall opinion of the match. I, I, I did agree that the crowd was a bit burnt out, although they still got up for the big parts of it. And just in my opinion, this is a, this is a significantly better match than their first match. And I thought their first match was very good, but this is significantly better. Um, AJ Styles, you are a, a good trooper for taking the kind of abuse Loki was dishing out here. AJ Styles has bled on a lot of these shows so far. He 
bled accidentally at the three-way he on the last show. He bled on purpose against Christopher Daniels at Road to the Title, and now he bleeds accidentally again here. So AJ Styles blood freak, I guess. But yeah, the 2002 ROH main events matches were like very stiff. Like Loki really did work very, very, very stiff. Like uncomfortably stiff. <laughs> I was just before the show, I found a clip, someone put on YouTube, a clip of AJ from an RF video shoot interview just talking about Low Key. And one thing he says after the Night of Appreciation match, he learned that he needed to start chopping harder. Like it basically, he said low key, that Low Key match kind of let him know that things outside of NWA Wildside would be a lot harder. Like he said in that match, the chops from Low Key were so hard that sometimes he was putting his arms up to, like, catch them so he didn't have to take them. And this match feels a lot harder than that. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that to me, that doesn't bode speak well of Loki, because they, they don't have to be that hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, with Loki, sometimes they're obviously playing into his persona, but I think the persona he had of being maybe too stiff, there's a legit reason he, that comes from it. Oh, yeah. And some guys like that, but... Matches like this, there was times where it looked like he was just really beating the hell out of this guy in ways he didn't have to. But again, he AJ marked up Low Key's face, and in the shoot interview, AJ Styles said, "You know, he likes Low Key as a person, as a re- and as a wrestler." So he obviously did not have a problem with giving it back to him. Yep. But anyway, great way to end a show. Two great matches. Definitely the, be- the best back-to-back match combo so far in ROH by a lot, wouldn't you say? Yeah, this is the first time we've ever had a show that ends with two really, really strong matches like this. And both matches that have at least a little bit of a storyline reason. You know, they've been building the Briscoes match up for months, and even the AJ low-key match has the low-key AJ first match had kind of a disputed finish, so... Both matches have a little bit of a reason to be there. They're both great. They both got ample time. The, the first real great double main event, it felt like, in Ring of Honor history. Agreed. And post-match, Loki celebrates. He We follow him through the curtains. And Xavier's waiting for him. And he references something that happened at Road to the Title, where there was a backstage promo where Xavier asked Loki if he won the world title. No, it was at crowning a champion. I think he said, you know, if, if you won the, t- if you win the title, can I have a title shot? And Loki said, yes, we can't hear half of what Xavier and Loki are saying because the audio from the PA system and the announcers is so loud, but we, we do hear enough to hear that, Xavier said, are you going to make good on that promise? Loki says, yes, we'll wrestle at the next show for the title. We see how marked up Key's face was. But of course, Loki doesn't just have to say that. He, go, he almost goes, a challenge was made, and a challenge is accepted. <laughs> I, I am a man of my word. Like, just like, like, this is what he's saying as he's standing in the aisleway after he just had a big match. So, it's just like, mm, tone it down a little bit, guy. <laughs> Yeah, it's goofy. I mean, in some ways I love it because it's low-key, but in some ways, yeah, it's, it's sometimes it can make you cringe a little. Yeah. So we end with two more little segments. We get Michael Shane is up in the bleachers after while the Ring of Honor ring crew is taking down the ring after the show. He cuts a promo where he runs down a few things. He calls down Rudy Boy. He talks about how he turned down the prophecy on the show. 
he kind of he acknowledges that he's still feuding with Spanky, and then he mentioned he says, you know, how dare you call yourself the showstopper? What they're still going with that, and then he mentions that Shawn Michaels' blood is running through his veins, which again, every time he mentions that he's related to Shawn Michaels, I feel bad because that comparison is just unfairly doing him no favors. Yeah, it was an average promo otherwise. Yeah, I mean it's probably it's st- it's still better than most of the ROH guys as far as promos go. I will say that. Like most of these promos are bad, and Michael Shane's was not bad. It just wasn't great. Yeah, it was just it just perfectly fine, yeah. and it was like the Christopher Daniels promos where he had to get across three or four different things, and he did. He he ran them all down in order, and then we get another pr- the end of the show. This is probably one of the weirdest ends to an early Ring of Honor show. Dunn and Marcos do a promo, and they look to be in the same spot that Michael Shane just was. Maybe like a minute afterwards, they just were waiting in line to do a promo. And they say that they, they tell say, us that they're. They say their catchphrase. They say they're Don and Marcos, the top tag team in Ring of Honor. Then the camera zooms in on the Carnage crew coming in to the ringside area, beating down the ring crew who's dismantling the ring. No, I think, I think weren't they beating up uh, the, the actual hit squad that, that time? Was it? I think, it was, sure. I think that was the hit squad at the end. It might have been the yeah, maybe. And then the camera cuts back to uh, Don and Marcos. They say, we are Don and Marcos, the top tag team Ring of Honor. Camera cuts back to the injured guys. Camera cuts back to Don and Marcos. They pause awkwardly and say, we are Don and Marcos, the top tag team in Ring of Honor. And that's the way the show ends. Like, caught to copyright info, end of show. Yep, well, they did have to get over that catchphrase, which they will say many, many, many more times over the next few years. So, <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the show. Weird show, right? Because it was like really good in some ways and also felt kind of endless. Yeah, it, it's weird. Like it, It's a show that felt long, but not like a chore. But it did feel long. It, it was the, There's so much stuff and... I feel like when you throw so much, so many short segments at the wall, you never get bored, but you never get super entertained because everything, nothing gets a chance to be great or horrible. I thought that middle hour felt kind of like a chore. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe because I broke it up into so many pieces, it felt less like a chore. But I, I think in some ways this was the best show so far because you got that big double main event. I felt like there was a lot of variety on the show. Because you you got your hardcore match, you got your straight technical match with Dragon and Morgan, you got your two crazy spot fests to open the show, you got a super stiff main event that really felt like a main event, and you got the Briscoes match that told an actual story. So I felt like there's a lot of variety on the show, and two great matches at the end worth going out of your way to see, and a couple good matches that weren't great, but, you know, I enjoyed London and... And Shane and I enjoyed Morgan and Dragon, and I felt like everything, with maybe the exception of um, Storm and Red, everything that you wanted to get time on the show got time. Yeah, I I thought probably from a pure wrestling quality, this was the best. This was the best. It was a good show, a very good show. But there's still something about the pacing that just it adds up to less than the sum of its parts. Um, they're going to get that down eventually, and the shows are going to feel more cohesive, but I don't think they're there yet. Maybe the n- different commentary will make a big difference, because the commentary was pretty bad for a lot of the show. I thought it was okay in the last three matches or so, but it's pretty bad for a lot of the show, and I, I, I am interested to see how the different commentary team uh, kind of makes the vibe 
a little bit different. I would agree. Um, I'm really interested in that. So I, I think we can both agree it was a good show. I don't think, I mean, it's interesting how times have changed because the Observer got a couple reader, long-time readers from New England who said this was one of the best shows they had ever seen in their lives. I, I would not go close to that far, but it tells you maybe what the standards for indie wrestling was maybe in the Northeast in, right. in 2002. But I, uh, even Dave complained about, I think that's one of the biggest flaws, obviously, was too many segments. Even Dave, who liked the show, pointed out, he said, I've got a strong belief that as a rule, you'd only want to violate, uh, I got a strong belief that as a rule, you'd only want to violate on special occasions, that you shouldn't have more than eight or nine matches and a two and a half hour show, and it's best on the, to err on the side of less, because so many sh- indie shows I've seen have a tired crowd before the headline matches, and green prelim guys get more heat just because of a fresher crowd. So, I think that goes right into what you were saying about the main event having a bit of burnout. But you it was know. so good that it wasn't enough to really make it, you know, to make it that much of a difference. You know, you see ROH cards later in the, the year and later in the ROH history where burnout is much more of a problem. Yeah. Uh, so I would say again, though, because you, there's so much stuff that if you just were to get this DVD or tape, if you can get it on eBay or something, if you watch the whole way through, I don't think it's ever going to pain you to watch this show. I mean, I think you felt the middle hour is more of a chore than me. But even the stuff that isn't great is usually pretty short. And it's worth going out of your way to see those last two matches, I think. They're, they're great. Yeah. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. Matt, we are halfway through the first year of Ring of Honor. Seems like only yesterday we started the podcast. We got six more shows to get through 2002. And the next show we will be doing is ROH Unscripted, which is a very noteworthy show in ROH history. We'll have a one-night tag tournament to crown the first-ever tag champs. We'll have the second-ever Ring of Honor singles champion crowned. And most importantly, we'll have the match that really broke Paul London through, the match where fans would want him not to die, the big street fight. Against Michael Shane. So, and, I apolog- and the new announced team. And I apologize for spoiling the fact that Boogaloo will not be on the show. Yes, all you Boogaloo fans, skip the next 80 shows. Skip, and, skip the rest of Ring of Honor history. Yeah. Although, if Boogaloo, although, although Boogaloo might come back, you never know. Although we will have reason to talk about Boogaloo's departure in two episodes. But yes. come back for Unscripted. Uh, again... Place to be Nation Podcast Network. Keep listening. There are a ton of good shows. Thanks, as always, to the Cubs fan. And thank you, Matt, for carrying the show. And thanks, thanks everyone, for listening. Tell a friend, just like it's a Ronco infomercial product. If you like the show, tell a friend. I will not, oh, stop, and, I will not stop the recording until I say that I did not carry the show. You will not get oh, away with oh, that. And I got to give the contact info because that's how horrible a host I am. Mm. If you want to contact us, through the years at gmail.com on Twitter at Trevor Dame and on Twitter at Mayor MGF. We're also posting on the Pro Wrestling Only message board, Voices of Wrestling, Figure Four Week, Figure Four message board. I, I'm checking all of them. Thank you guys again so much. Matt carried the show. I'm they going to assist on that. Nope. Yep. <laughs> uh, anything else to say, Matt? You're the greatest host in the history of hosting. Okay, well, suck it, Joe Gagney. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Suck it, Joe Gagney.